Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black Talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com By October, most new college students are settled in on campus. But that's not true for many Native American students at Dartmouth College. That's because the controversial director of the school's Native American program has just been removed. From our Code Switch team, New Hampshire Public Radio's Peter Biello has the story. It's a quiet morning at the Native American house at Dartmouth College. Freshman Sherry Sneezer has parked herself in the dining room to study. She's one of the 91 students currently at Dartmouth who rely on the Native American program for support and advice. We just need a director right now because we don't have anyone to lead us and we need some sort of support, someone we can relate to. Sneezer is Navajo. Before she came to Dartmouth, she lived on a reservation in Arizona where she says people are quieter and more modest. So being surrounded by noisy college students took some adjustment. She knew that there'd be cultural differences like these. It's still kind of difficult, but I'm getting used to it. The Native American program director is supposed to help students get used to it. That's why Dartmouth brought on Susan Tafe-Reed. When the college announced her hiring in September, it cited her work with the Native American Student Associations at Colgate and Cornell Universities. It also promoted her, quote, leadership roles in her Delaware tribal community. That's when Nikki Michael, a member of the Delaware Tribal Council, said, wait a minute. The two recognized tribes are in Oklahoma, and we've never seen her here. As it turns out, Tafe Reed's nonprofit, Eastern Delaware Nations in Pennsylvania, is run by members of the Tafe family. It's not a federally recognized tribe and doesn't claim to be. Michael says this nonprofit has no connection to actual Delaware Indians. What upsets me is that they're taking money for Delaware culture. We have no idea what it's being used for. A representative from Eastern Delaware Nations says they are entirely separate from the federally recognized tribe in Oklahoma and that their connections to Native American tribes are legit, though undocumented. So just because the tribe is not federally recognized does not mean that they're not legitimate. That's Anton Troyer. 
He's a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University in Minnesota. Troyer says lots of people self-identify as Native American without having documentation. For a long time, being Indian was not cool, but now it is. And you also have people who have very, very tenuous ties to Native communities who are happy to raise up that part of their profile if they feel it will give them any advantage. Dartmouth College and Susan Tafe-Reed declined our interview requests, but in a statement, the college defended her hiring, saying it can't ask job applicants about their heritage. The college says it's now looking for a new role for Tafe-Reed. For Sherry Sneezer, heritage is not a requirement to lead the program, but... They'd relate to me better if they were Native American. That would make it a lot easier to talk about spiritual and mental problems. Problems such as feeling out of place at an elite institution like Dartmouth. The college says it's looking for a permanent director of the Native American program. In the meantime, current program coordinator Kiana Burke of the Narragansett Tribe is in place to provide support to students. For NPR News, I'm Peter Biello in Concord, New Hampshire. Black babies cost less. He says he never intended to make a child the target of racist, vile jokes. That's exactly what happened when one Atlanta man posted a picture of himself to Facebook posing with a co-worker's child. Gerard Roth's Facebook friends brutally mocked three-year-old Caden Jenkins. Uh, they mocked him and made references to slavery and more. This picture has cost Roth his job, and now he's telling his side of the story to Fox 5 News. Fox 5's Marissa Mitchell reports tonight. My entire post was taken out of context. context. Gerard Roth says he never intended for this picture to cost him his job. He took it with Sidney Shelton's child, Caden, at their job, Polaris Marketing Group in Atlanta. Roth says he made the picture his profile picture on Facebook, but some of his Facebook friends posted racial remarks to it. I just really feel upset, not only with myself, um, but also with the character that was based off of the comments that my friends made. Um, I feel as if not only poor Caden himself has been victimized, but also myself for being targeted. Names like Toby and Kunta Kinte. Just some of the racial comments that upset Shelton. Her friends sent her a text of the screenshot containing a series of insults. He is not a deaf child. He is not mute. He's never been abandoned. He is a well-loved, fun-loving, hyperactive, your typical three-year-old. Roth admits to one comment. Uh, at that point, that person said, oh, so you mean to tell me you just have wild kids running throughout your office building? And that's when I said he was feral, which, of course, was interpreted directly as racist. Um, but that was honestly not my intention whatsoever. Roth told Fox 5 he simply picked the latest picture from his cell phone after removing an old profile picture. He claims he never thought Shelton would mind. And up until that point, I thought Sydney and I were personal friends. Shelton says she's thankful her employer, PMG, terminated Roth. But the pain over the post that has since been deleted remains. I do everything that I can to make sure that he never has to want or need for anything. And to see people bashing him, grown people bashing a, a small, helpless child, it breaks my heart. In Atlanta, Marissa Mitchell, Fox 5 News. Are there any conservatives here tonight? <laughs> or are they? Because if you'd like to be Speaker of the House... <laughs> The position is available. Wow. Did you see all the Republican on Republican violence this week in Washington? It was... <laughs>
Clinton Yates with the Washington Post has this very situation on his mind tonight in my take. What is going on with the Republican Party? Today, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy suddenly dropped out of the race to succeed John Boehner just hours after asking his colleagues for their vote as Speaker of the House. Who knows why he didn't choose to carry this out, but some of the descriptions of what happened were wild. Congressman Peter King said that members were actually crying in public because the tumultuous situation was just too much to bear. Crying, like actual tears, in Congress. What a mess. The party is effectively a banana republic, King said. You don't say. Of course, the Speaker of the House doesn't technically have to be an elected member of Congress, but it always has been. It's technically the third seat in command overall as well, so all your jokes about giving it to Donald Trump might not be a great idea. As for the GOP, the presidential nomination field is already too big, and today it feels like on the right side of the aisle, leadership is lacking. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. When you say the Democratic Party don't care about the African-American community... Isn't that obvious? Hey, you got half of your kids out of work and the other half are in jail. Do you see any Democrat doing anything about it? <laughs> Certainly not me. So what are you going to do, vote Republican? Come on, come on, you're not going to vote Republican. Let's call a spade a spade. I mean, I mean, I mean, come on, you can have a billion man march if you don't put down that malt liquor and chicken wings and get behind somebody other than a running back who stabs his wife. You're never going to get rid of somebody like me. Today, activists with the Black Lives Matter movement met privately with presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. The activists have been calling attention to issues of racism and police brutality and marching in the streets of places like Ferguson, New York, and Baltimore. DeRay McKesson is one of the best-known names of this movement, and after he met with Clinton, he streamed this video on Twitter. Hey, thank you so much for the meeting. Thank uh, you. You're on Periscope, so can you just say hi to... Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay. You are the social media emperor. You know, you just gotta... DeRay McKesson joins me now from Washington. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Kelly. It's uh, humbled to be here. Well, first off, can you just tell us how did this meeting with Hillary Clinton come about? You know, I tweeted to her um, and said, would love to find time to talk about a set of issues before you release the platform. And in her campaign, she responded on Twitter, and we... Uh, subsequently worked to schedule the meeting. So we met for about 90 minutes, about 10, 11 protesters from around the country. And what did you talk about? We talked about a range of issues spanning from private prisons to mental health services for for young kids to the role of the federal government in ensuring equity um, in local and state governments and communities. So it was a, it was a tough conversation, candid conversation, I'm hopeful that it will lead to an informed platform that she eventually rolls out. You know, we didn't agree about everything, namely uh, the role of the police and communities. You know, we had a lot of conversation about that. You said that some of the interactions with Clinton were tough. Tough how? Yeah, so we just didn't agree, right? So uh, there were pushes from protesters sort of saying people don't believe that the police are always these beacons of safety in communities. And and she, uh, you know, at the beginning, it felt strongly that a police presence was necessary. She listened and heard people sort of talk about how safety is more expansive than police. And we worked through that, but it was a tough exchange. And I think around some other issues around the private prisons, right? It was like, you know, will you end private prisons? And she was adamant about ending private prisons. There was a question though about, will she stop taking money from lobbyists who lobby for private prisons? And it was unclear where she landed, but that exchange was, we had like tough conversation around it. When you talk about alternatives to police, what are you talking about? So sort of highlighting this question, what does it mean that we have a police first response to everything? With kids in schools, right? Like, do we need the police to be the people that 
help schools be safe places. So just trying to push on that, you know, and, and thinking about like there are some models around the country where we've seen that when you employ people, that crime decreases in some places. And that's like an alternative to this idea that police, that we can arrest our way out of the issue of crime. I mean, this activist movement got its start in the streets. Just over a year ago, you were protesting in the streets of Ferguson after the killing of Michael Brown. And now you're in Washington having this private meeting with a presidential candidate. I mean, what do you make of this? Yeah, so the protests highlighted this need to focus on black America in a way that structures had not before. Hillary knows, just as Bernie and O'Malley, that they cannot win without the black vote. And what we've seen is like a new generation get mobilized around uh, their own understanding of power um, and our understanding of like what the systemic response should be. That's candidate Martin O'Malley. I mean, do you have any plans to meet with Republican candidates? Yes, I formally requested a meeting with Marco Rubio and they replied saying that someone else will reach out to me and I've not heard a reply yet. Um, And I will likely reach out to uh, Ben Carson's team and uh, also trying to get a meeting on the books with the RNC. That's DeRay McKesson. He's with the group We the Protesters. Earlier today, he and other activists met privately with Hillary Clinton in Washington. DeRay, thank you so much. Thank you. And one more note here. After today's meeting, Hillary Clinton tweeted, quote, Racism is America's original sin. To those I met with today, thank you for sharing your ideas. Brothers and sisters in the hood get shot up every day. Half the children can't read. They parents ain't got no job. Voting don't make no difference. Wake up! If you think voting doesn't make a difference, then you're dreaming. Register and vote. Rock the vote! Calls are growing for the Justice Department to investigate how the closure of 31 rural driver's license offices may affect voting. The state closed those offices last week due to budget cuts. The problem, say civil rights advocates, is residents must have a photo ID to vote. Most common ID is a driver's license, and Alabama now has 31 fewer places to get new driver's licenses. Alabama Media Group columnist John Archibald says state officials are taking steps to address the situation, but it's not enough for the black belt, an area of the state that's poor, largely African-American, and disproportionately hit by the closures. We talk with John now, as we do most Thursdays. Uh, Good morning, John. Good to have you here. Good to be here, Andrew. Now, you tip your hat to Secretary of State John Merrill for, as you say, bending over backward to let residents know that free voter IDs are available in each county at County Board of Registrars. But, But you say that's not enough. Why isn't that enough? Well, I mean, I think we just overlooked the the vastness of this area that that is it is it is poorer than the rest of the state. It is more sparsely populated. Transportation is more difficult. It has a history of voting rights problems. It is the cradle of, shall we say, the voting rights movement. Uh, and and yes, it is it is it is more African American population, and and it is just a place that most people in the state, including I think many in government. Do not fully understand that everything is more difficult there, and I think that we ha- and, and John Merrill it's, he didn't create this mess. He didn't create the voter ID law. He didn't create the the budget problem. So he's in a tough spot. But uh, it's hard to see how how sending out vans into areas uh, to give IDs really solves the problem or saves money. So you have uh, this wider context, uh, this history around the black belt, but what do you think the state should do beyond making free IDs available uh, across the state? 
if you're asking me, I think that the the state should suspend voter ID until they get all these offices back open. Or uh, you could uh, set up voter ID spots at the polls themselves. Let people bring the birth certificates, the other information they need to get voter IDs directly to the polls. Uh, so that way you don't have to make an extra trip. It's more diff- People say, well, why? What's the difference if, between a license and a voter ID? Well, a voter ID you, A, have to swear you don't have any other form of ID, and you can use it for no other purpose but for voting. So if you have a driver's license that you need to get renewed or if you want to get a driver's license, are you really going to go get a voter ID just to vote? People don't often understand that's, re- that's really just sort of an extra hoop to put through. But if you had them available at the polls, it might make a little more sense. Well, the state estimates a quarter of a million people who could vote don't have the valid ID. Meanwhile, the Secretary of State's office says only a few thousand have obtained those free IDs over the last few years. Critics have seized on that, saying this is clear evidence the state isn't doing enough. Do you see that as fair criticism? Well, I think it, it, I don't think it was necessarily fair criticism until you start closing driver license offices. I mean, that, that makes it a bit difficult, different. Um, I mean, it is, again, hard to argue if you call up and say, hey, send me a van on a voter ID uh, if they'll come to your area. It's just people don't think of doing that. And again, most people have more of a need for a driver's license. Well, Congresswoman Terry Sewell has called for the Justice Department to investigate. Reverend Jesse Jackson was here in Birmingham and Montgomery yesterday calling for the same thing. Uh, Do you see state officials responding to this uh, apart from some sort of federal order? Uh, well, it's very difficult to say. They, the, apparently, the governor and John Merrill bo- were both receptive to talking to uh, Jesse Jackson yesterday. And while I, I think it was clear that the intent – I don't believe the intent of this was racist. I don't think the governor or the or Spencer Collier at Aaliyah or these guys were sitting down saying, let's figure out how to hurt black people with this. I think the consequence – does affect black people in the black belt more. And I think rather than being racist, it may have been just a lack of understanding of what that means in this area. Uh, There's a chance it will be addressed in some way. God, what the hell is it with you people? Us people? Yeah, you people. I didn't misspeak. You people have no idea what loyalty is, what respect is. You're here because you were supposed to help us, and you spent every second of it trying to tear us down, tear me down, push your own damn agenda. I'm here to find the truth. The truth is those people in Rosemead have no respect for anything or anyone. No, they're like you. They just take whenever they want, and they have no problem turning their backs on the people who gave it to them. People like me, who strap on their boots every day, kiss their wife and kids goodbye, and trek 40 miles into a city where everyone, including little babies, are taught to look at us like the enemy. They are taught to question me to disobey me, and still, I risk my life for these people. Every day, for seven years, I have allowed myself to be disrespected and hated by these people, all to protect them from themselves. I mean, all I hear about on the news are dirty cops, cops who shoot innocent black kids. It's crap! There were 84 murders in this city last year. Were all of those cops shooting innocent black boys? Hell no. Those were blacks turning guns on each other, and yet somehow I'm the animal! Brandon Parker is dead because he didn't have respect. Because those people out there who are chanting, crying over his body, they didn't teach him the right values. They didn't teach him respect. He didn't respect me. He didn't respect my badge. Questioning my authority was not his right. This blood is not on my hands. Call 
caught on camera a Prairie View councilman tased and arrested. Police say he interfered with an investigation and resisted arrest. That happened just around the corner from Prairie View A&M. Eyewitness News reporter Natasha Barrett is live with more on what led up to those dramatic moments. Natasha. Eric, a lot of people talking about this video. We're about to show you all of it twice, so you can be the judge of it. But this tasing incident happened not too far away from where Sandra Bland was arrested this past summer here in Prairie View. And the officer, the female officer in the video, well, the police chief out here says that that officer was also involved in Sandra Bland's arrest. This was outside of Jonathan Miller's apartment last night. The 26-year-old is a council member with the city of Prairie View. In the video, officers tell Miller to put his arms behind his back. Miller does not move his arms. Miller's friends told us that they were hanging out with fraternity brothers at home in Prairie View. Several of them went outside by their cars to change their shoes when police pulled up and questioned others about what they were doing. Friends say Miller came out to check on them. Police say they told Miller to back away from the situation. Soon after, a friend recorded this tasing. In the recording, you can hear Miller tell police he lives there. I live here, man. We showed people in Prairie View that same video. Now, what did you think of the video that you watched? It was horrific. Like, I honestly, like, if he wasn't, he wasn't armed. Like, he had his hands behind his back. They say he should have listened to the orders and put his hands where he should have yeah, put his yeah, hands. Yeah, that that's true, too, but as far as, like, he wasn't, the cop wasn't in danger, so I don't see why he should have tased him. The Prairie View Police Department released this statement today. It says, after repeated commands to step back, Mr. Miller was told that he was being placed under arrest for interfering with the investigation. Once officers attempted to arrest Miller, he physically resisted. Mr. Miller continued to resist even after repeated commands to stop. What do you think the police should have done instead? I mean, if, if he was doing something wrong, they could have easily handcuffed him. He wasn't trying to get away or anything. He was on his knees. As for Miller, right now he's out of jail. He got checked out at the hospital today. We have reached out to him several times today with no luck. Reporting live from Prairie View, Natasha Barrett, 13 Eyewitness News. He turned around and he put his hands up like this, hands up like this, hands up like this, hands up like this, hands up like this. And the cop continued to fire, continued to fire, until he just dropped down to the ground. Until he just dropped down to the ground and his face just cut the concrete. I'm putting my hands up, but it's time I ain't trying to party. I'm just trying to live. I mean, literally live. Officer, wait, don't shit. I know this summer is hunting season, but I'm just trying to give my mother something she couldn't believe it. Damn, and I might trip along the way, but do I deserve to leave my soul on the seat this evening? The goal is not only to air out concerns, but to generate recommendations that will be given to city and police officials. Harold Lloyd has lived most of his life in the old Fourth Ward, better known as the crime play Clay Street Corridor. A quick look around reveals a startling lack of playgrounds or rec centers. Harold says few officers are from the city, which makes relating to the community difficult. So when they come through, it's to lock up somebody or to tell them to move. Really, there's no relationship. A group known as the Caucus of African American Leaders contend neighborhood concerns with police is a consequence of a bigger issue within the department. It's called racism. There are people who believe that there have been the victims of racism. They, those who have applied have not been hired. 
those who've been hired believe that they've been denied employment opportunity based on their race and their color. Community leaders organized a town hall meeting October 14th at City Hall to discuss whether systemic racism exists in the department. The public hearing is prompted in part by a discrimination lawsuit filed in federal court by four Annapolis officers. It's currently under appeal. They allege they were bypassed for promotion and were not treated the same as white officers. You receive one level of treatment, I receive another level of treatment. That's disparate treatment. City police deny the allegations. The department says it has bi-monthly meetings with the community. Its accreditation requires diversity. 26% of Annapolis is African American. 24% of the police officers are black. We know that there are some deficiencies we have, especially when regarding um, Hispanic police officers, female police officers. These are struggles every police department has. Um, but we're, we're very, um, you know, diverse within the police department. Town hall meeting organizers hope to invigorate those who feel wronged by police within and outside of the department. And one thing that we've experienced is apathy may, uh, you know, actually turn into a scar that then, that, that then turns into hate. The meeting will be held October 14th from 7 to 9 p.m. at City Hall in Annapolis. Former police officers are also expected to testify. Reporting live from Annapolis, David Collins, WBAL TV 11 News. We live in the same city, but it's no shame when I have no name, no identity, no voice, no choice. Just another one of you people with your saggy pants. I'm calling ambulance. This was his destiny, so I killed him carefully and effortlessly. now to a call for an independent inquiry into allegations of racism in the Canadian forces. A former member says he and his family were subject to racism during the three years in which he served, and he wants to see policies and procedures so that this doesn't happen to others. Here's CTV's Jacqueline Foster. There was incident after incident. There were police reports. Wallace Fowler spent three years with the Canadian Armed Forces as a vehicle and traffic technician. He claims the racism on and off the base started during his first posting. He recalls one instance at a parade. I remember standing out. There was a, there was a little white girl that said, look, mommy, there's a nigger. And um, I just sort of put my head down and, and the guy beside me said, don't worry about it. You know, they're like that out here. Fowler's lawyer says his client was even more affected by how his family was treated. For example, in Esquimalt, his family, they lived on the base, and his children faced uh, racial taunting in school and uh, in the community. My ex-spouse uh, used to work on the base, and, and there would be times people would literally... Um, refused service because she was black. Ron Stockton says others backed Fowler's claims in Esquimo, but after he moved from B.C. to Trenton, Ontario, there was another investigation and Fowler was told no records existed of his complaints. He was released from service in 2003, Fowler says, for not being able to adapt to military life. Today, he's calling for an independent inquiry into allegations of racism in the forces. Without addressing all forms of discrimination, the military we don't believe can be successful in dealing with any of them. I've never once asked for money, not once. I've asked for an inquiry to take place based on the people's involvement so that this doesn't happen to the next family that goes through what I went through. Reuben Coward, a former sergeant, says he too suffered from racism. They, the military 
incessantly reports that they have a zero tolerance towards discrimination. But I want to make it unequivocally clear, they have no policy to deal with racism whatsoever. Wallace Fowler wants that changed. And a spokesperson with public affairs for the Department of National Defense says they are looking into this. She says they haven't heard from Mr. Fowler in a while. They want to know exactly what is being said before they respond. And as a result, she said they wouldn't be able to meet our deadline today, Steve, but they do hope to have a response by the end of day Tuesday. All right, we'll follow it up then. Thanks, Jackie. You're welcome. CTV's Jacqueline Foster from our newsroom in Halifax. We need that perfect hair. What exactly are you, man? What's going on? All you do is ask me what the hell I am, who I'm with, what I'm buying. You always act like a motherfucking cop, man. Shit is bullshit, man. I'm free. I'm free. Let me be free. I want to be a cop. The city of Charlotte reached a settlement with former police officer Wes Randall Carrick. Carrick resigned after a hung jury in his murder trial and the killing of an unarmed black man. The city accepted the resignation and agreed to pay Carrick more than $100,000, most of which was in back pay. Gwendolyn Glenn has been following the Carrick trial and joins us now from member station WFAE in Charlotte. Hello, Gwendolyn. Good to talk with you. Thank you, Same here. Tell us more about the, the settlement that was reached between the city and Carrick. Well, the settlement, uh, it's effective October 2nd in terms of his resignation, and the city will be paying Officer Carrick nearly $113,000. Now, of that amount, $98,000 of that is for back pay from the time when Carrick was suspended just after the shooting, the fatal shooting happened until his effective October 2nd resignation day. Now, the city also is paying additional funds for $50,000 that will go to the attorney who defended Randall Carrick in his civil lawsuit. Now, that happened before the criminal trial, and um, it will also pay funds for retirement and Social Security. So the total cost of the city is going, going to be $180,000. And, um, I mean, it's interesting. I wonder if it was coincidental that the announcement came after the uh, primary, the local primary elections. Any, any connection there, or was there any uh, fallout because of the timing of the announcement? Well, no, um, I can only speculate about that. The mayor just issued a, a, a statement just saying that, you know, this is now a chance for the city to move on and heal uh, the attorneys, and no one made any comment. We learned about this through press releases and press statements, and they all said that they would not be making any comments. Well, we'll talk about what it is the city would like to move on from and some of the backstory when our conversation with Gwendolyn Glenn on the decision by the city of Charlotte to settle with Randall Carrick, former police officer in Charlotte. That conversation continues on the State of Things from North Carolina Public Radio, a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Stay tuned. This is the State of Things broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Frank Stacio, continuing our conversation with Gwendolyn Glenn, a reporter at WFAE in Charlotte. We've been talking about the Carrick trial in in Charlotte. Randall Carrick was charged with voluntary manslaughter for shooting and killing an unarmed African-American man. The trial ended in a hung jury. The city of Charlotte reached a settlement with Carrick in which he will receive about $113,000. Um, Gwendolyn, any reaction to the to the settlement? Well, the family has reacted in terms of they felt like that he should not have been, uh, as the mother was quoted as saying, paid for 
killing her son, and they say they are very still very upset about that. And you had a few protesters who were here who have also expressed dissatisfaction that he will be getting this back payment uh, from the city. All right, and maybe we should go into the backstory now and tell us what this trial and this case is all about. Well, two years ago, in, in uh, 2013, um, Officer Carrick was one of three officers who responded to a 911 call in which uh, a homeowner said that someone was breaking into her home. And it was uh, Jonathan Farrell had been in an accident a short distance away from this homeowner's um, residence. He had um, no shoes on. He he was it was very dark on the road, and he knocked on her door. His her, his attorneys, the prosecutor, said seeking assistance. She took him for a burglar call, 911, and when Officer Carrick and the two other officers arrived on the scene, Jonathan Farrell was uh, walking up the road. There was a video cam of this, of showing him walking towards the officers. He was clearly unarmed and, as I said, didn't have any shoes or anything on. Uh, he, uh, One of the officers had a taser pointed on him, and Randall Carrick had his gun drawn. The third officer was a little on the side, away from them. So when uh, the red dots from the taser appeared on Jonathan Farrell's shirt, that was when he started to run in the direction of the officers, and it went off camera. And then shortly after that, we started to hear the um, shots fired. There were, I think initially from the video cam, there were four fired, and then there were eight more shots fired. So uh, 12 shots were fired in total, 10 of them hit Jonathan Farrell, and he died on the scene. Carrick was charged with voluntary manslaughter. Tell us what happened during the trial. It was a lengthy trial, and it was um, a lot of questions from both sides were raised in terms of the training that um, Randall Carrick said. He said he followed the training. You had prosecutors saying that he didn't. You had those on both sides testifying in terms of of training, saying that uh, Carrick was fine to pull his gun but not to shoot it when someone is unarmed in that kind of situation. And the defense said that Carrick feared for his life and that he was justified and went um, along with the how he was trained. The prosecutors uh, in that line, it was a very emotional trial. The fam, Both families were there, and some of the photos that were shown were uh, the family would leave at times because they were very, some of them were graphic. And um, the um, both both sides, uh, the prosecutor said, you know, we're not trying to say you're a bad person, but that you panic and forgot all of your training. The defense, again, said that he did what he was trained to do and that he was justified in shooting um, uh, Jonathan Farrell. And it ended in a hung jury, right? It did. After several votes, um, the jurors came said that they didn't feel they could go any farther. The um, judge wanted them to keep working at it and to try to come to some kind of verdict, but they said that they felt that they had gone as far as they could. The first initial vote was seven to five, but after that it got stuck at eight to four, and they felt like that they were not going to make any additional progress, so it was a hung jury. The prosecution could have charged him again and chose not to. The They, they could have, um, and, and I want to say after that, um, they... you. Charlotte had a lot of protest, and um, the family uh, visited the site of the shooting 
and on the anniversary, September 14th this year. They had never been to the site. And um, they, during that time, when I talked to the mother and the son, they said that they were disappointed that the prosecution did not uh, elect to retry this case. Um, according to the DA's office, they said they didn't feel like they could get a different verdict, so that's why they said that they decided not to uh, go further with it. The city also reached a settlement with the family. Uh, did we know anything about that? Yes, they did, and this was before the trial started. In the uh, civil lawsuit, the um, city came to an agreement with the family, and they paid them two and a quarter million dollars. And part of that money the family has used to, they said, to set up a foundation in Jonathan Farrell's name because they said they plan to continue to seek justice for Jonathan Farrell. And I remember when that happened, the defense uh, said that they felt that would sway the jurors because the city came to the settlement prior to the criminal trial. And one thing I also want to add, in that uh, uh, settlement in terms of Carrick's resignation, the city did not pay any of uh, Randall Carrick's criminal trial attorney fees. All right, Gwen, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. Gwendolyn Glenn is a reporter for WFAE in Charlotte. He had a criminal record, like many of our young people. What I'm trying to tell you is genius is in the jails. Some of the best of us is behind bars with a criminal record, and the criminal record don't tell you who these young people are. It tells you what white folk have made them in a world that is adverse to them. Welcome to the ProPublica podcast. I'm Joe Sexton, a senior editor here at ProPublica. And with me today is the incomparable Jennifer Goneman of The New Yorker magazine. Jennifer has been a, a legend for many years for her brave and compelling reporting on the myriad outrages of our criminal justice system. But then, roughly a year ago, she published a story that I bet even she found distinctly breathtaking. Jennifer, tell us about Khalif Browder and how you came to tell his story. Sure. Uh, Khalif Browder was a young man who was arrested in the Bronx a few years back on a robbery allegation. He was walking home from a party when a police car pulled up and somebody in the back seat pointed him out and accused him of having robbed him of a backpack a couple weeks earlier. Khalif said he hadn't done it and thought that the case would be disposed of very quickly. He went to the police station, explained that they had the wrong person, but what he thought would be a quick case turned out to drag on for three years. And so that was three years of shuttling back and forth between the courts and the Rikers Island jail system trying to get this case resolved. And in the end, after a full three years, the prosecutors realized they didn't have enough evidence to proceed, and they dropped the charges against him. And how is it that remarkable saga, three years uh, locked up on Rikers for a crime you haven't even yet been convicted of, how did you come upon it? You know, he um, was released from Rikers Island in the spring of 2013 and filed a civil case against New York City and it got a little bit of attention in the media and I heard something about it and I filed it away and then when I was between stories I took a closer look at that civil case and was taken aback by what it alleged that he had endured and thought maybe I should meet him and see if there was a story there to do. Tell me about that meeting. You have a character or potential character who exists, uh, you know, in the paperwork of a lawsuit, 
And then you have the opportunity, the occasion to sit down and, and actually talk to them. And But I would assume you have sort of multiple obligations at that point, both to successfully get him to tell you his story, but also then uh, to begin to test it to see if his account is in fact accurate, because on its face, it is pretty hard to believe. You know, the very first time I met him, he had been out of jail for almost a year. I think he was 20 years old at that point. And the very first time, I was just trying to get a sense of what he was like as a person and whether he would have any interest in participating in a story. And I explained to him that it wouldn't be your sort of everyday newspaper story in the sense of a quick turnaround that I would want to interview him a number of times. And was, I was trying to gauge whether he would be game for that kind of uh, reporting experience. And at the same time, I was trying to get a sense of what he was like as a person and how he talked about his own experience. And it quickly became apparent that he was a very intelligent young man and that when he did talk about his time in jail, his time in the court system, he spoke about it with tremendous insight, which, of course, would make him, I knew, a very good subject for a magazine story. Tell me a little bit about his background. So he's a teen, right, when you meet him. Had he grown up in the Bronx? He grew up in the Bronx, not too far from the Bronx Zoo, in the same house for his whole life. His father had worked for the MTA, I believe, as a subway cleaner, and one of seven siblings, pretty stable home. He'd had interactions with the criminal justice system in the past, but they weren't extensive, and yet he went through an extremely sort of horrific experience. For reporters, and sometimes this is a, uh, or it can have the risk of seeming unflattering or unglamorous, you know, we all make calculations. Uh, how powerful is this story? How novel is this story? because uh, we want the stories we tell to have a true impact. The New York Times had done a quite good series on the sort of epic backlog problems and delays in justice in the Bronx. Did you grapple at all with any worry that, that people, readers, somehow might be inured to one more outrage from the Bronx? You know, when I originally pitched the story to The New Yorker, I didn't really even think of it as a story about the court delays in the Bronx. I imagined it as a story primarily about Rikers Island and the outrages and horrors that were going on in the adolescent jail out there and the tremendous overuse of solitary confinement. And it was only in the course of the reporting and multiple rewrites going back and forth with the editors that at some point one of the editors said, we really need to understand better exactly why did it take three years for this case to go through the system? And that sent me, obviously, back to do more reporting to really tease out exactly what and who were responsible for these extraordinary delays. And so in the end, the piece became sort of 50-50 about life inside Rikers Island and also inside the uh, Bronx courthouse. The story is staggeringly well done in terms of making you appreciate just insanity. <laughs> I mean, his case was uh, simply adjourned and adjourned and adjourned and adjourned, and the list of uh, reasons why prosecutors not ready, prosecutors on vacation, defense lawyers not ready, um, if I may be wrong on that, but it's just extraordinary that day after day, month after month, and as you drive home in the piece year after year, he can't even get a hearing much less a meaningful examination of the evidence against him. Yeah, I think the Bronx courthouse sort of, you know, is living in, 
in its own sort of world in a sense where things that might seem outrageous to Khalif or to a reporter, there they just tell you, well, that's business as usual. And I think it's only when an outsider comes in and shines a spotlight on it do the folks who actually work there day in, day out maybe see it in a slightly different way. Right. And the sort of uh, partner in crime, so to speak, (laughs) of this story is you have the Bronx court system on one end and you have Rikers Island on the other. Um, And Khalif, you know, had tales of, uh, you know, what sounded like sort of routine brutality within the Rikers Island jail facilities. Um, And in that sense, again, without wanting to seem too cynical. I mean, you got lucky in a way because it turns out that the U.S. attorney in New York was pretty deep into an investigation of just those sorts of potential abuses and produced a report that I imagine as a reporter working with Khalif must have made you a lot more comfortable about accepting Khalif's version of events because the report was pretty damning, right? Yeah, no, exactly. It was about, I believe it was August of 2014 that the U.S. attorney in the Southern District in Manhattan came out with this absolutely blistering report about the conditions in the adolescent jail in Rikers Island. And that, at that point, I was maybe five or six months into this story, and it wasn't fully finished yet. And so, in a way, I got lucky, but at the same time, I actually knew that investigation was going on. It had been going on for many years. I didn't know when it, the report would be released. The groundwork for that investigation some of the horrors that had been going on in the adolescent jail in Rikers Island had been exposed, I don't know, five, six, seven years earlier in the Village Voice by another reporter, Graham Raymond. So it was all sort of on my radar when I started going down this path. You know, one of the countless remarkable aspects of the story was uh, Khalif's uh, resolve throughout that he actually get a chance to test the evidence against him. Uh, it sounds like there were various plea offers made along the way and occasions in which he could have walked out of Rikers uh, based on a deal that would have allowed him to time served. But he simply wouldn't submit to that. He ultimately was released, probably to his own complete amazement. (laughs) But when you then visited him back in the Bronx and out in the world, it, it seems like he was quite damaged or in some distress. He clearly was was suffering. You know, he had told me about, you know, various moments that he was offered plea deals, which he turned down. At one point, a judge said to him, he had been locked up for, you know, almost three years, and the judge said, you know, if you plead guilty to uh, two misdemeanors today, you can go home. And he says, I'm all right, I did not do it. I'm all right. And the judge is sort of baffled, like, you're all right? And he says, yes, I want to go to trial. So even at that late date, he was insisting that you know he was not going to plead out to something that he had not done. And then shortly after that, the uh, judge you know, informed him, the DA informed him, that the case was going to be dismissed. They didn't have enough evidence to, to have a trial, and they just let him go. And he, just, he could just never seem to reconcile what had happened. He, you know, one day he's there, he's a prisoner, and the next day they just let him go with no fanfare, no apology, no explanation. And he just... The way he described it to me was he acted like it was just, they acted like it was just okay, and it wasn't okay. It wasn't okay. And the fact that it just was not okay that he had been robbed of three years of his life, he found so deeply disturbing that that's really what propelled him, I think, to want to talk to me in great detail about what he'd endured. It also seems to have propelled him to some real 
depression. Um, I may be wrong, but I think in the story it recounts that he tried to take his life shortly after or in the months after his release. A few months after his release, he did attempt to take his life while in his home in the Bronx. He tried to hang himself from a stairwell, and he was rushed to the hospital. Right. Did you fear the worst? I mean, there are reporters, you know, when they get this deep into a story and by definition this close to their subjects, it's all quite intimate and sometimes fraught. You must have worried for him. Um, I definitely worried for him, you know, while I was working on the story and, and for months and months afterwards. I mean, I'm not sure if I was overly optimistic or if I was in denial myself, but I actually never thought his story would end the way that it did, which is that he took his own life this past June. You know, actually, at that time, there were, at least to me, no real indicators that things were going awry. He actually seemed to be doing better than he had been since he'd come home two years earlier. He was in Bronx Community College. He was doing well, making up for the years that he had lost of his schooling while he was locked up, and he was making some new friends and starting to imagine a new life for himself. So it certainly didn't look like he was going down the path of despair in those final weeks and months. He was pursuing through the lawsuit. Maybe maybe he imagined it ultimately compelling somebody to both explain to him what had happened and to apologize for it. Does the suit against the city or the, the system survive his death? You know, his parents are taking over the lawsuit, which is you know, its own process in court. And so that has slowed down the proceedings a bit. But I think the the case will is, you know, certainly gonna go on. It's gonna continue. Your story was a was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in feature writing. And really I mean that was just one of just many of the examples of how high profile and seemingly urgent reporting on criminal justice has become in the last year. It does seem like a moment For you, are you optimistic about what can actually happen in this rare moment? You know, I'm very gratified that politicians, policymakers, other reporters are paying closer attention to the criminal justice system. I've been writing about prisons pretty much off and on since the late 90s, and the situation was just as horrific then as it is today. But, you know, just getting a lot of media attention is no guarantee that the situation is really going to dramatically improve. I feel like it's only a very first step, but the enormous bureaucracy that's built up, you know, the so-called prison industrial complex, dismantling that is going to take sort of extraordinary effort and political will. I mean, the I feel like the nation's prisons have become this enormous employer, and as a country, we, we've almost become addicted to incarceration, especially in rural areas. You see this all over upstate New York, small towns where uh, prisons have actually become, you know, the economic engines uh, for those counties. Just in closing then, you know, I was reading a piece in uh, Esquire, I think, a week or so back about the New York Times war correspondent C.J. Chibbers um, and his decision to put down his war notebook, return to his family, and uh, find a different kind of reporting life after more than a decade in one combat zone. I don't think it's a stretch of metaphors to say you've been in your own combat zone covering criminal justice for for years now. Do you ever (laughs) get worn down by the subject? Do you ever 
wish, not unlike Chris, that, uh, you know, you walk away and do something different. Uh, it is seemingly quite a world of, of hurt that you inhabit. I had written about Rikers in the past, and I had, and I'm sure other reporters might be able to say the same thing, had, you know, my share of dreams where I'm locked up on Rikers myself, or dreams about solitary confinement. And at one point I said, I'm not going to write about Rikers Island again. I'm just, you know, I've had enough. And uh, and yet then when I heard about Khalif's story, it just, I found it so compelling and so disturbing that um, it got me back back on that beat. And I feel like that as long as these social problems persist, that I'm probably going to feel driven to, you know, to keep reporting on them. Well, we're grateful for that drive, and we thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Joe. I appreciate it. I want to live. Don't kill me, big black man. Well, just in the nick of time came Samuel Coe, who, in 1836, invented the first weapon ever that could be fired over and over without having to reload. And all the Southern whites were like, yeah! But it was too late. The North soon won the Civil War and the slaves were freed. Yep, they were free now to go chop all the old master's heads off. And everybody was like, oh no, we're gonna die. But the freed slaves took no revenge. They just wanted to live in peace. But you couldn't convince the white people of this. So they formed the Ku Klux Klan. And in 1871, the same year the Klan became an illegal terrorist organization, another group was founded, the National Rifle Association. Soon, politicians passed one of the first gun laws, making it illegal for any black person to own one. It was a great year for America, the KKK and the NRA. Of course, they had nothing to do with each other, and this was just a coincidence. One group legally promoted responsible gun ownership, and the other group shot and lynched black people. Tomorrow, President Obama visits the Northwest with stops in Seattle and Oregon. First, the president will go to Roseburg to meet with the victims' families and survivors of the Umpqua Community College shooting. His trip is intended to pay his respects and help survivors and their families heal. But as King 5's John Langler reports, people opposed to the president President's stance on gun control plan to protest. President Barack Obama comes here to Roseburg tomorrow. He will soon find out this is a community in grief. He will also soon realize a large portion of the area doesn't want him here. Damn you, Obama. Seven days after and the emotions are raw. The wounds open and the desire for healing pronounced. Roseburg is still grappling with the fact someone walked onto the Umpqua Community College campus and opened fire. Uh, it's devastated the county, it's devastated the town of Roseburg. And Casey Runyon was horrified by what he saw. From his home on the Oregon coast, he was angered by what came next. Absolute disgust. President Obama gave an impassioned speech after the shooting, laced with sadness and frustration another public place had been victimized by gun violence. But for supporters of gun rights, the president had just politicized an extremely tragic event. People, it's a heart issue. It's not a gun issue. So Runyon and 11 of his like-minded friends have organized protests for when the president comes to town. There will be at least two. Thousands are expected. He is not wanted out here to uh, push his agenda. And uh, using the families uh, for that agenda is not just unacceptable, it's utterly despicable. President Obama will only be in Roseburg for a short amount of time. He is scheduled to land here just before noon. In Roseburg, John Langler, King 5 News.
After the president's visit to Roseburg, he'll travel to Seattle, so drivers and bus riders should expect traffic delays once he gets here. The president will fly into Boeing Field, then his motorcade will head north to downtown Seattle. The Secret Service will limit vehicle access between 4th and 7th Avenues and Olive and Lenora Streets. Parking will be restricted on downtown streets. Buses will also be rerouted on the surface streets in the northern part of downtown. Tonight, your pukes will sleep with your rifle. You will give your rifle a girl's name because this is the only pussy you people are going to get. Your days of finger-banging old Mary Jane Rottencrotch through her pretty pink panties are over. You're married to this piece, this weapon of iron and wood, and you will be faithful. Part a shoplifter fleeing the scene of a Home Depot in Michigan. She did what any of us would definitely not do. She started shooting at them. Uh, now, she was a concealed carry license, and the shooting happened in the store's parking lot around 2 p.m. when Home Depot security was chasing a shoplifter in his 40s who jumped into a waiting dark SUV. Uh, but when the SUV began to pull away, a 48-year-old woman suddenly began firing shots at the fleeing vehicle, the vehicle escaped but possibly has a flat tire, according to uh, the police spokeswoman. Now, the woman who fired the shots does have a license to carry a firearm uh, and is cooperating with the police during this investigation. Okay, usual uh, ridiculous <coughs> comments by me before we get to the serious part of the story. As you're describing the scene, all I can think of is Will Ferrell from old school. It's go time. <laughs> <laughs> Guy jumping into a van. You could, okay, which leads to the serious point. Don't do it. Don't shoot people. Don't shoot them randomly. You don't know what that guy's story is. You're not the cops. And the cops are not allowed to shoot him. Okay, there's a good reason for that, because your life is not in danger. You only get to shoot people if your life's in danger. Not like, oh, man, it's a pain in the ass to chase that robber. Eh, I'll just shoot him in the back of the head. That's, no, that's a crime. Like, it's a crime if the cops do it. It's a crime if you do it. So that's the problem when everybody has a gun. Like, they think that they're Clint Eastwood, and they're like, oh, yeah, make my day. <laughs> right? No, no, you're going to kill somebody. Yeah. And, and what do you, why, why did you execute them? Oh, they shoplifted. 
that's not an offense that deserves execution. Uh, agreed. The, 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 the article says that it's not clear whether the woman would face charges in the incident. How is it not clear? She started shooting at a shoplifter. First of all, what can you steal from Home Depot? Like a piece of lumber that you're going to shoot people over? That's, that's absurd. That is totally, totally absurd. Oh, my God, he's got a fixture. <laughs> no, but I think there's another good kind of lesson from this is even people who uh, are licensed for concealed carry shouldn't be shooting them. Do you know what I mean? She couldn't even hit an SUV, a giant SUV from the scene. Like, there's no reason that she should have this gun in the first place because even if it was an invader, she's not going to shoot them. Now, let's... Put aside the person she's trying to shoot mm. and think about all the other people she might shoot. Exactly. Now, this is in a retail district with hundreds of stores in the area. You're shooting at a parking lot. Think about all the people that, that might be in their car even if you didn't see them, let alone the people you did see, let alone the people driving by. Right. You know, I mean, she couldn't even hit an SUV, as, as Hannah pointed out. God knows how far she's going to miss, but I know mm. you all think you're Dirty Harry and all that stuff, right? But you ain't all that, okay? And so when you start shooting randomly in a parking lot, you think it's not random, but oftentimes it turns out to be random. Right. Thank God she didn't hit anybody else, mm. let alone the guy she's aiming at, which she shouldn't hit either, right? So now this is just the beginning. Tip of the iceberg. So this is one story. A couple of weeks ago in Warren, which is a nearby area, mm. There's a bank robber comes in. Somebody in the uh, bank has a gun, pulls out the gun, boom, shoots the bank robber. Okay. Now you think like, yeah, got him. That's exactly what the right wing wants. Yeah. No, no, no. You don't know. The guy, the bank robber, we don't know if he was armed. You executed the guy. Okay. And it's not clear whether he passed away from this story, right? Mm. But you could have, and you certainly shot him in a situation where likely no one was going to get hurt. Bank robberies these days is people walk in with a fake gun. Or no gun, because the bank's fellows are told to cooperate. And they say, just give me some money. Somebody gives him, you know, a couple hundred bucks or a couple of thousand bucks. He walks out and gets arrested. Right. Okay, that's usually how it works. But now everybody's dirty Harry. And now, again, tip of the iceberg, because now people just started shooting people because they think that they're, uh, you know, Chuck Norris and all that. But then, wait a minute. If it's in the middle of a bank robbery and the other Chuck Norris in the bank thinks you're the bank robber, and that you just shot somebody, right? oh, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. And here we go. Wild, wild west. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that if, like, I think all these people want to be sort of like justice keepers and things like that. Mm-hmm. If you are shooting at another person, you are not a justice keeper. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I just, sorry. Here's the only situation <laughs> under which you should be shooting at someone, if they're shooting at you. Yeah. Okay. Then, like, that's the dream scenario you want, right? The, the, all the guys who fantasize about this all the time. Because then you actually have to protect yourself. Mm. Like, we all understand that. But if someone is not shooting at you, they're not using deadly force against you, you're not allowed to shoot at them, and you shouldn't shoot at them. You shouldn't execute them for shoplifting, jaywalking, or e- even a bank robbery. No, you're not supposed a, a cop wouldn't even shoot that guy. I mean, these right. days the cops, let's keep it real, would. But they're not supposed to, right? Right. Uh, we're in a lot of trouble, man. I mean, you were people worried about terrorism. You crazy, man? This is what I'm worried about. Everybody's got a gun, and everybody thinks they're a hero. We're, we're all screwed. This happens in your neck of the woods all the time. A terrorist detonates a bomb enormously infrequently, right? Right. This is enormously frequent.
This yeah. is what we should be worried about. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, October 10th, 2015. So I have been told. Compensatory call-in. Feel free to chime in. Uh, if you have views, things you would like to share, uh, the number to dial, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, the number one more time, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. We should be here uh, tomorrow. Uh, another white person should be on the program. Uh, he'll be joining us live. Uh, Arno McAllis, I think that's how you say his name, Arno McAllis. Uh, he's been on a few different broadcasts. He's written a book. He's on the lecture circuit, uh, was a former uh, skinhead. Uh, he was actually a member of a white supremacist rock band lead singer. Uh, he was uh, a reverend, uh, they had some sort of, literally some sort of uh, religion of white supremacy, and he was a reverend <laughs> this movement, but he's uh, allegedly reformed now, and he's written a book about, you know, how he changed his life, and now he's advocating for social justice. He's been on Democracy Now!, and uh, Al Jazeera, lots of, yeah, some of y'all have probably seen him. I know Lashes has seen him, uh, but he should be here tomorrow, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, always great to be able to talk to white people. That said, uh, a couple things before we get to the callers. Uh, number one, uh, I deliberately did not play any audio clips pertaining to the justice or else event in Washington, D.C., uh, because I think I said before, uh, I contacted Leo Muhammad, black male. Uh, he's also a member supporter of uh, Minister Farrakhan, Nation of Islam. He resides in the U.K., He's been on the program uh, repeatedly before. I contacted him uh, before today and uh, was hoping that we could get him on the program at some point uh, to talk to see if he had kept up, if he had followed the march, and, you know, what's been happening with racism in uh, the U.K. It had been a while since we'd had him on the program. And he wrote me back, and he said, uh, I plan on, you know, traveling and being in the States. I plan on being at the march. So... Uh, he basically uh, he said that he could even if, if his schedule permitted, uh, he would try and see if he could come on the program today and give us an update uh, after the uh, event was over and just let us know what he saw the whole nine. If he could work it out with his schedule, uh, if not, uh, he would just get in touch and, and come back on the program once he's back in the UK uh, in a couple of days and tell us you know what he saw, give us the update the whole nine. So. 
that was why I deliberately did not include anything because I knew either we were going to be doing another program today uh, where I could play whatever audio I wanted pertaining to the Justice Rails thing, and then we could have more time to focus exclusively on that. Uh, but that's why I'm very aware. I think I watched the whole thing uh, today, uh, so we'll be spending some time on that at some point. But that was specific decision-making process as to why you didn't hear it in the audio segment. A uh, quick comment on uh, one or two of the things that you did here, that uh, last segment from uh, the Young Turks. Um, that was a pretty popular event, this shooting that happened at the Home Depot. Uh, in my opinion, that is another great illustration just within that segment, what you heard from the Young Turks. Now, I could be in error, but the other reports that I have seen, and they have the video uh, they show the video if you watch the, the segment from the Young Turks, but the other reports, other outlets that cover this event, uh, they show the video of the shooting. And to me, unless I'm in error, the suspect who allegedly uh, shoplifted whatever from Home Depot, they did say he got about $1,000 worth of uh, goods, so I guess he got more than a few pieces of kindling. But uh, the alleged suspect, the alleged shoplifter, uh, you can see him, like, with his, his cart, and he's, you know, trucking on out to uh, his vehicle. Uh, the shooter, I believe, in this case, is a white woman. Now, in my opinion, their failure to mention that uh, is a massive, deliberate act of racism, white supremacy, in my opinion. Now, I could be an error about that, but uh, I just cannot imagine how different this event would have played out, how different the reporting on it would have been if it had been a black male, a black female, a black child, if they had been wherever, at any outlet, any store, anywhere in the world for that matter, and a white person, any white person, white female, white male, white child, whatever, any white person stole anything and they run out of a store and the black person's response is, oh, criminals, <laughs> and they bust out and start – Man, I cannot believe or I, I cannot even imagine how different the reporting on that event would sound. And just to hammer the point home, y'all remember the event that happened earlier this year? I believe it was at um, Walmart. It was a black male. He had a concealed carry permit. He had his firearm holstered on his hip. He wasn't you know, going through the store doing tricks, twirling the gun on his finger or anything. He just had his firearm in his, in his uh, waistband, going to do his shopping. Some white person saw him, assumed that he was, you know, a gangster, a thug, and we need to go to town on him. And they, you know, beat him. This is all on camera. They beat him down in the store. It turns out he didn't do anything wrong. The black male has his permit. They arrest the white guy, take him to jail uh, for battery. Just events like that and everything else that I've seen under the system of white supremacy, I just – I cannot imagine white people having the same laissez-faire attitude if a black person, even a black person with a concealed carry permit, just decided they wanted to start letting off a few rounds in the parking lot because they suspected some random white person uh, had done the wrong thing. And I'm sure the Young Turks know that. They are not ignorant. The problem is not that they need a refresher course. They don't need to listen to the cows. I suspect that the white people involved on that program, I suspect Sank could be uh, Sink, the host. I suspect he could be white as well. I suspect that they're just deliberately practicing racism, and I think you see that pattern consistently. I try to get at least one clip from them every week because I think they and Bill Maher, they're just the younger version of the same thing. These are good white folks. They're refined. They're all about social justice and talking about racism and blah, blah, blah. Nothing could be further from the truth. Next, uh, the report at the beginning 
uh, that you heard uh, the white guy, I think that was another one that was popular down in Atlanta where he was mocking uh, this young child. In fact, I won't even say anything because I think a lot of people saw that, so I'm sure people will bring up their own comments. Uh, the piece on Khalif Browder, uh, if nothing else, we've talked about that before, but if nothing else, uh, number one, I definitely appreciate uh, the black self-respect in him being willing to fight for himself, taking a stance that I did not do anything incorrect and I'm fighting for justice. I'm not taking a plea bargain. Uh, Mr. Cephalosha, uh, the black male who plays for the Atlanta Hawks, he did the same thing. He just uh, got his, his not guilty verdict. And they were saying that he's, he's contemplating whether or not he's going to sue the NYPD, but that just happened yesterday. Black male in New York who was abused by uh, NYPD's finest earlier this year. But I really appreciate Mr. Browder having the self-respect to uh, not take a plea and say, I'm, I'm going to trial. I didn't do anything incorrect, and I want to be completely exonerated, not to cop to some lower deal just so I can get out uh, quicker. But him saying, I'm okay when, when the judge was surprised or, or whatever, like, what? No, no, I'm giving you an opportunity to get out. All you got to do is, you know, say you were guilty and we'll let you go. Uh, and he says, nope, not going to do it. I am innocent, and uh, I'm not going to admit – I'm not going to lie and admit to some crime that I didn't commit. Uh, I'm okay, and the judge kind of looks at him. If nothing else, that will be my reminder uh, for consistently on this program when I recommend and, and many others that uh, we've heard we're not okay, <laughs> not doing okay. I have slips every now and then where I don't make the correct comment, but when people ask, are you doing all right or whatever, no. As long as the system of white supremacy exists, I'm not okay. We're not okay. We are about as far from okay as you could possibly be, even on our best day. No, I'm not okay. That's why I generally write poorly. That's what I've been saying for a long time, uh, but it just reminded me of that and hearing it uh, in the clip, and definitely hope uh, folks remember uh, Khalif Browder, another illustration of the terrorism that is on display every single day under the system of white supremacy, all that over a backpack a backpack of all things. Uh, I think with that, I will pause. There are a few other things, but I know there were a lot of uh, things that took place today. If folks have comments on the Justice or Else March, that's totally fine. Hopefully we'll have Mr. Muhammad, if not today, uh, very, very soon um, to get his update. But definitely if folks have commentary on that or any of the other things, feel free to chime in. The number again is 641 715 Four zero, the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you have comments, things to share. We'll do workplace racism later. Uh, if folks could share one time, and then allow other folks uh, to make sure that they're able to share or make whatever comments they want. Uh, really appreciate that. If you have second or third comments that you want to share after you given your get your first time to speak, if you could wait to make sure everybody else gets at least one turn, that would be great. If you could watch the background noise, if you know you're in a loud environment where there are other people talking or you got the television on or whatever else happening, uh, if you could try at least to get to a quieter area when you do your speaking, and then you can use your mute mod uh, once you're done just to try to maintain the quality of the program so folks aren't distracted and, and having to hear all the uh, commotion that you have going on in the background. With that, we will hit the phone lines. Everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Feel free to chime in. Let's roll, let's roll, let's roll. We're not doing overtime today. <laughs> folks who have a hand up, 
Uh, let's uh, have our commentary, please. Tom, you heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, guys. Tom Smith from New York. Um, Hello? Yes, sir. Oh, yes, sir. Good evening. Um, just a few comments to make about the the segments that you played. Um, you know, first, uh, the, the clip about the private prisons. Um, you know, I listen to Scotty Reed's show sometimes, and um, very good informative on the private prison, the private prison um, corporation, you know, a.k.a. the slave, modern-day slavery. And it appears that the only person talking about it is Bernie Sanders. <clears throat> and um, they were trying to meet with um, Hillary Clinton. And um, I just wanted to keep in mind for everyone that um, no one was arrested, had arrested more black people than Bill Clinton. I think you know, his administration was way more than George Bush's. And um, also, in my opinion, on issues regarding race, she's just terrible. She's um, the worst person in the whole race, and that includes the Republicans. And um, I'll never forget how negative and outright racist her campaign became when um, Obama's lead increased on her the last time. And um, when it became statistically impossible for her to win, she held up everything until the night of the nomination, even threaded the elected delegation count, which probably would have went her way under the system of racism, white supremacy. And, um, you know, I, I just think she's a terrible person in, in general and an outright racist. And, um, you know, I would never vote for her. <laughs> and I, I wish that, you know, every all black people would just turn it back on her altogether because it's her track record. Um, Obama and gun control, you know, I can't think of no event, no one, especially no black man that's going to take white people's guns away from them. So to me, this is just a bunch of, you know, I, I, I don't know what he's looking to gain. He's not a dumb person, but, you know, white people have guns because of their fear of genetic annihilation. It's the great equalizer. As Dr. Weldon said, it's their penis, um, their, um, their way of protecting their genetic you know, annihilation, you know, and it, it's so true. And I don't see anyone taking that away from them. So I don't, I don't really get why, I don't even get why they're making such a big deal out of this. I, I'm trying to get what the, the grand point is because they, they'll go to war to keep their guns. I, I don't see it. Um, the cop got paid a hundred thousand dollars, and I thought, man, I thought he was going to get way more than that. So I was kind of shocked he only got 100000 And um, I wanted to know if you or any of the other listeners, remember the cop shot this black guy, and um, he was a rich old white volunteer cop, and afterwards he went to the Bahamas. I never heard anything else about that case. I just want to know if anyone else did. Did that guy ever get charged or was there a grand jury or anything that, that he had to um, go through? Um the 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 last clip played, man. 
shooting someone from stealing from Home Depot. The world's largest specialty store, they pull in about $90 billion a year. Every piece of merchandise they sell and put out on the floor is insured against theft. I mean, so whatever it was, they could have marked it up. They probably could have, if they stole $1,000 worth of merchandise, they was going to get $2,000 back for it, okay? Like, and this was a security guard, I think, not even a cop. And, I mean, if she would have hit some innocent bystanders, killed some white people, shooting at this black man, I bet they would have charged him for the murders for causing the whole thing. Uh, lastly, um, um, I just wanted to see if anyone else had heard that Walter Scott's family got a $6.5 million settlement. And um, this is the second settlement to come out back-to-back, Freddie Gray and Aaron Walter Scott, before they even had a trial or anything. You know, it's pretty much, to me, it looks like the police department or whoever's paying is saying, these people are guilty. Here's some money, which is really, I mean, $6.5 million. It's not worth a life, you know, but it's, it's almost like, you know, what, what's the I, – I think these cases where they're giving the people the money first, we should automatically assume that the cops are going to get off. And um, I'll mute my line. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think in the deputy case, this uh, other folks have commented, the deputy case, uh, I think it's Robert Bates uh, is the – Suspected race soldier's name uh, who participated in the shooting earlier this year, and uh, at least from what I've seen, he has been charged uh, with manslaughter. So I think his case is supposed to be coming up um, next year, I think. Uh, It could be an error, but I think it's supposed to be coming up in 2016. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, feel free. Good evening, everyone. Um, am I getting feedback? No. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Um, let me see. On the um, the councilman, on the article about the councilman in Prairie View who was tased. Mm, there's a couple of background things. One, it's Prairie View A&M University's homecoming weekend. So that means people who went to Prairie View are coming in from all over the country for homecoming, and uh, they have things they're used to, like these giant uh, parties. You know, they have parties for the weekend. It's like 2,000 people. And for some reason this year they revoked the permit to have the parties. So instead of having, you know, everybody in one area where they can be monitored and, you know, and keep it, they have, they're still going to party, but they're partying all over the place, you know, little areas, which is what, you know, people were doing because they've been dispersed to all of these separate areas. Um, And so what happened was the councilman was in front of his house and uh, the the police officer, you know, just yanking on people. Just He's like, you know, well, where's your ID? And he's like, you know who I am. And uh, and he identified himself. And he says, I don't see why you need to have my ID at my house. And so that's, that's, when, um, that's when he was tased. And 
this is pure speculation on my part, just knowing people. I think some of that is political because there are people who want that councilman's seat back. And they have begrudged him that seat. That's a seat that uh, some more progressive people put him in, and uh, they want that back. And also a cousin of mine told me, she said, yes, yes, uh, Connor, I we overheard the DA in the courthouse yesterday, and they were saying how they were getting everybody out of the jail so that they could make room for the people who were coming back for the homecoming and prayer view, you know, to put them in jail. So they were getting everybody out of there yesterday. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's our DA. Um, hmm. um, oh, I'm, I'm still, I was in church today, you know, and I was looking at all the pastors who were there, you know, with churches just, you know, blocks from where Miss Bland died. And I just can't believe none of them showed up. None of them have still showed up. And and I was told, I was told that um, it's because for all the black churches in, around here, they are given money by the Europeans. Because I thought, you know, they were being intimidated by the DA. They said, no, it's because the Europeans support the black churches. They give money to all of the black pastors. And I really hadn't thought about that, you know. I just So that's something new for me to mow over tonight. But uh, as far as politics is concerned, there are people out there, and, you know, maybe it's just for nothing. But I, I have worked very hard with some other people to hijack this party, just like the Republican, the Tea Party hijacked their party. And uh, I think this hijacking is going to be beneficial. And uh, I'm just following their example, and they got some stuff done. Do it done, and I think that um, I think that we can get some stuff done. Instead of trying to work with people, we just hijack the whole thing and take it where we want to go. Thank you for listening. Line on, line on. Other folks uh, have commentary. Feel free to chime in. Uh, when we get to workplace racism, uh, I'm transitioning because I feel like we go through this a lot. I have to keep saying the same thing about uh, not lollygagging and wait till the last minute to decide that you have something to say. Uh, we uh, will be transitioning to workplace racism uh, probably sooner than folks think, so just keep that in mind when it's time to transition. Uh, we'll be moving along. Feel free to chime in if you have other comments uh, to share, either audio clips uh, or other other things that happened over the past week that you want to make sure you get in. This would be a time where I can get in my reminder about uh, Greatest Spectator because we have a lot of people that are just sitting on the line and uh, not chatting. That's one of those things that uh, <laughs> just strikes me as, the most bizarre. I would even say it's not constructive because this is uh, call-in. This is not one of those programs that you're – this specifically, the Saturday compensatory call-in. This is one that is all for you all to exchange views. Uh, so this is not one that you should be coming, yay, I'm excited to uh, listen and sit back. This is one that folks should be saying, I'm coming to participate either with observations, things that I've seen from the past seven days, news clips, etc. We have lots lots that's been happening to uh, address and deal with. Uh, other person that dialed in from a block number, do you have commentary? Yes, I would like to make a comment about the uh, woman. I don't know her name. She's on the Turk show, the Young Turks. Oh, right. And, uh, mm-hmm. 
just want to say when she's making comments about uh, racial issues, she's very animated, and uh, her animated gesture shows that she's not genuinely, uh, uh, not not. It's like what she's saying is not authentic. Is is what I'm trying to say. It's it's almost as if she's trying to be entertaining, as if she feels bad for what has occurred. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up is that there was a time where. I don't remember the incident exactly, but she was describing something that happened to a black person, and she actually used the N-word. But then another situation occurred where that um, she described what Iggy, no, not her, that's not her. The lady, she's a hip-hop artist. She was on the airplane, and she used the derogatory word that's used against homosexuals. But the way she said it, she said, Oh, that woman, Azalea Banks used the F word that is derogatory toward homosexuals. But when she addressed an incident that occurred to black people, she didn't say N word. She actually used the N word. I don't know if you guys get what I'm saying. Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to get that statement. Thank you. And they have a, a new uh, white chick on the Young Turks, I think. Uh, they had the regular uh, white chick who had been on before. I think uh, it's a different white woman who made the comment about the, uh, what is it, Azalea Banks and the incident that she had on the airplane last week. That was a different white woman than the white woman this week who was talking about the Home Depot thing. She's, I hadn't seen her before. I don't, I don't see every single episode of The Young Turks, so maybe she's just been on uh, other programs that I haven't seen or, you know, whatever the case is. But I hadn't seen her before, so I think she's new. But uh, that's a different white woman that was on the clip today than the one from last week. Okay, but, but it um, seems like they – go ahead. But, but I understand what you're saying, but to me, my premise on it is that if you're broadcasting – news information, there should be a certain code that has to be followed by everyone. And if they follow a certain code for certain news information and they don't follow for another uh, another set of information, to me it feels like that's a representation of the show. I don't know. That's how I see it. Right. I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. I know, folks, so. Still uh, lollygagging uh, on the day. I'm a, a minor bit surprised just because I assume that some of the folks uh, that are listening and or calling in that are sitting would probably have paid attention to the uh, Justice or Else March and might have some commentary on that as opposed to uh, just the sitting and <laughs> listening, um, which is a little strange, again, for a call-in program. Uh, I would think more folks would be uh, in the participation lane than the sit back and spectate lane. Did anybody see uh, any of the festivities or have any comments on what they saw with the justice or else uh, event that happened today? Well, I didn't see any of it. I was at work, and uh, when I came home, I was looking all over the television to see if there was any news was talking about it, but um, no one would see to talk about it. And um, to the lady who just called, uh, Farrakhan as well takes money from the government, just like the rest of those speeches, just to keep everyone informed of that. People didn't pay attention to uh, that either. That's cool in the gang as well. <laughs> I'm going to talk to uh, Mr. Muhammad about that down the road. 
Uh, other person that dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Oh, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay, good evening. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello to you, Gus, and uh, to all the callers and listeners. As far as the um, the march, I, I didn't. Of course, I didn't get a chance to go. I would have loved to have gone, but um, I don't know. I, I read some comments um, from people that had written, you know, that came up on my wall on Facebook, and um, I guess some people just didn't seem to be, you know, I guess really that kind of enthused, because I guess the thing was justice or else, so it's like, well, what is the or else? And um, I know one person may mention, I I guess he had a Native American speaker, and I think the person said something about, uh, you know, you're standing on our land, and I'll talk as long as I want to, and you know, I guess there were some other speakers and that um, some of the people that, like I said, that was on my wall, you know, kind of expressed, um, say, displeasure in it, you know, just saying that, you know, people who don't really care for blacks, but you got them up there speaking. And then somebody may mention, I guess, this fair time spoke for like two or three hours or, you know, a couple of hours or hours or so, and they just didn't get, you know, like what he was saying. So, you know, I don't know, you know, because like I said, I didn't, um, I know it was on C-SPAN. I think the one thing, no, that somebody else put up on Facebook that, you know, if you had Baltimore, you had Ferguson, you know, we almost get wall-to-wall coverage of that, but then you had the 20th anniversary, and, you know, no one other than C-SPAN. I mean, I know MSNBC, when I looked at this here's period, I looked at some of the news later, they mentioned, you know, about about it, and they had their guy, which is Tremaine, somebody's a guy, he talked to a few people as to why they were there, if they had been there 20 years ago, you know what they think. So, you know, that's about all I, I, that I saw of it. So, I mean, I don't know. You know, I guess the thing is what what comes after this, you know, do we, should we look for something or what? Because, you know, it's kind of like somebody says, what, what, what is the or else, you know? What is the or else? Are you saying justice? Or else, if we don't get justice, what is the or else? What are we gonna? What you know? What's gonna happen? So, um, you know, that's that's about all I gotta say about that. But the, and then the other thing I want to say is about is I listened to your program Thursday. I listened to it in the archive. And of course, you didn't get a chance to listen to it Thursday. Of the 25 year old white guy who was a part of this uh, African group or something like that, and <laughs> uh, one of the ladies callers came on, and she, I remember she asked you, she said, Gus, do you, do you have that saying about buckets and buckets of words? And I, I chuckled. I really laughed so hard because when I when he first started talking, that, that was all that I, that's all I could, I could just hear Justin's voice in my head. He's just saying buckets and buckets of words. And then I, I think that the information that he wouldn't talk about to me was very telling, and it sounded like, I think somebody mentioned it too, it sounded like he had a script. You know, he wouldn't talk about how many people are in the organization. I remember you asked him, how many people? Give us a round number. Oh, we don't talk about that. You know, you talked about, you know, basically somebody said, you know, his personal life. You know, have you dated or, or had sex with, you know, black people? Oh, we don't talk about that. I don't find that has anything to do with it. So I just thought it was, you know, very interesting, and I think the thing is, um, when you have these groups like that, and then they have, I guess, these white offshoots, or you had a lot of white people in there, I just think it adds to more and more um, confusion to black people. Um, it was something he said, and I remember 909 said, he, you know, he said, you, you don't want to say this. He said, it's just 
evil. It's just evil. And as I was listening to him, I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, it's just evil. You're 25 years old and you're in this. 20 years from now, you probably, you know, this guy could probably be very conservative and using the information that he had while working in this group to try to destroy, you know, black people. And then he wouldn't even say when uh, somebody asked him a question about the African people, Africans, uh, I think it was a retired firefighter, and he mentioned about uh, John Kerry, Secretary of State John Kerry's wife, being born in Africa. And I didn't, I didn't know that. But then he is right. Like her, Charlize Theron, these whites who will come over here, uh, you know, from Africa, you know, who could say, yes, well, I am an African-American. So when he asked me, so, well, who are the people, you know, who are these African people? And he wouldn't even seem to give an answer to that. So I just thought that show was just very interesting because I didn't listen Thursday. I listened to it yesterday while I was at work. So I thought it was very interesting. I'll mute my line. Right on, right on. Uh, yeah, that was, should have another white person on tomorrow. Said that consistently. Always great to have white people on the program to evaluate uh, their responses. The other person that called in from, uh, I guess you're on the vote line. Uh, you should. Good evening, everyone. Um, I was actually thinking about attending the. Uh, the march, the you know, that um, that's this weekend. But it's it's like <clears throat> I found I really thought to myself like why why do I want to go? It was kind of more of a I guess novelty purposes really to where I feel like I'm <clears throat> um, well I would feel like I'm doing something really. But my thing is when we we do stuff like that, we we really do need to have that uh, that comprehensive plan that. Um, you know, two-week plan, you know, what's the goal for two weeks after, a month after, you know, 90 days after, you know, what's what's the ultimate goal? Just like the um, caller who just spoke said, like, it should be a comprehensive plan as to what the objectives are and uh, is this stuff going to be uh, constructive? Because, you know, like, you know, it's been mentioned on the show before that people are going out there, it's going to be spending a lot of money making a <clears throat> Probably a lot of white people are going to be making money, uh, and then just like that uh, uh, that popular that uh, Nilly Fuller clip that you played uh, some time, where uh, I guess Nilly Fuller, uh, Mr. Fuller, attended a uh, some type of uh, convention or something, and then you know the somebody, some man said, "Hey, I'm about to get one of these, you know, uh, nice women and take them up to the room." So I think it might be a a lot of things like that going on with, with stuff like that. So, but um, that's all I have to say for right now. Thank you. Yes, you can be heard. I, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, how you doing, Gus? And uh, just first, uh, first time call, a long time listener. Uh, I, I just wanted to make a comment. I I didn't go to the Mean Man March uh, this time. I went the first time. I, I listened to it on uh, C-SPAN, had it on, at least guess most of the, some of the speakers. I thought he did, some of the speeches, they were, were positive and some were negative. Uh, I thought Farragut's speech, when talking about doing inside searching, I thought it was a good idea that, you know, I think we should spend more time and, you know, could could do some of that sometime, do some inside searching. You know, I just thought it was, a you know, uh, as far as that platform part, I thought it was pretty good from the last time. Uh, I mean, myself. 
Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I just wanted to respond to the uh, brother's statement. Um, I, I understand what the uh, brother was saying in terms of soul searching uh, in reference to uh, Louis Farrakhan's statements, uh, but as I feel that in general, as human beings, um, everybody can do soul searching, but because we don't have a system that benefits us or that gives us a playing field to uh, to to work to gain success. I mean, we'll, we'll be doing that forever. For example, how, like on the news, sometimes they'll say, oh, if, if a black men pull their pants up and, and all this other stuff that they say. I mean, you can find that in any group, but if there's a system that's constantly oppressing you, it'll be forever because that's just of human nature to find negatives in, e- in every group. Uh, I mute my line. The person that dialed in uh, on the... Vote line, you should be with us as well. Do you have a comment? Good evening. Greetings. Yeah, I thought, I guess, I don't know if, uh, I believe I got cut off last time. I'm not sure because I talk, started talking, but <clears throat> I was just saying about the, uh, like the Million Man March as well. Uh, like one of the callers previously said, um, I think it might be one of the cases of, that uh, Neely Fuller clip that you play sometimes, Gus, where, you know, he went to some convention and he was supposed to be speaking, but they didn't have any real, you know, objectives. So they were out there kind of partying, you know, some man said he out here looking for a woman to take to his room. So I think it could be quite a bit of that going on because generally when we get together and start doing stuff, uh, we, we need to have a comprehensive plan again, you know, with, seven-day plan, a, you know, 30-day plan, three-month plan, one-year mark to work, really make sure that whatever you're doing is constructive. And uh, I think, you know, I wanted to go and I really thought about it, like, you know, why do I want it to go? So I do have something in my in my, uh, my spirit to where I want to get out, actively do something, you know, physically. But Really, I kind of thought about it. It's like it's more a novelty for me, so I decided not to do so. Uh, of course, it's going to cost you know cost some money, which will probably end up in some racist hands. So I decided not to go. But we really need to start planning stuff to have you know these one-year, two-year plans to to meet whatever objective that we decide on. But that's all I have for right now. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Brother Gus, I actually have a question for you. Um, again, like I said, I've been listening to you for a long time. Uh, all right. I want to know ideally, because I see that you have a lot of wisdom uh, in terms of uh, getting, I guess I could say people as well. I don't want to just say uh, black people, people to understand this system in which I wasn't really aware of until I really started listening to you. So I understand that your show is to, I mean, basically what it did for me is for me to gain codification and to operate a certain way so that I can uh, go through the day without uh, having a nervous breakdown, basically. So I would like to know ideally, um, other than the show or maybe based on the show as well, what is your goal? Like what would you want black people to do to get out of this system apart from codification like what would you think would be the best goal to get out of this 
Uh, number one, um, if I have, if uh, I get disconnected, uh, I've been losing my whole signal, like not just dropping, like losing whole internet signal, everything. So if anything happens, that's what it is. Could be racist interference. Um, we did have a brief storm today, but I mean that was a while ago, like ten hours ago. It is not raining now. There's no storm. It's calm up here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, but I just want to get that on the record. That's it. Um, or I guess second thing would be uh, I will make a humble request again if people could not call me brother. Thank you kindly. Oh, uh, I didn't know that you didn't like that. I'm sorry. It's no apologies needed. Just uh, that's part of my code. Uh, we do not have uh, fraternal um uh, fraternal treatment uh, on this planet until that's the case, I prefer, you know, let's just keep it, keep it real. At any rate, okay. uh, what, I would, what I would request is that or what I would want to see is just black people, non-white people on the whole, modifying our behavior so that it's in line with what we should be doing under a system of, right, uh, system of racism, white supremacy in terms of you have an understanding, we are in that system, you, you're working, we are working to get a better understanding what it means to be white, what we can do to neutralize the system immediately, and have that be reflected in our behavior, uh, just more and more, more and more efficiency in realizing this is the problem, and we should be de- uh, dedicating maximum resources to this. I don't think it looks like that right now. White people are to blame for that, but in my mind, that would look like, how would I frame it? Um, in terms of it being reflected in the way that we prioritize things, right, in terms of what is important. If we really are in a system of racism, white supremacy, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our dollars, all of that reflects, man, this is the number one priority for black people, for victims of white supremacy. Nothing else is more important than getting rid of this system, having that reflected everywhere. We don't go to the mall and waste money on nonsense. We don't go to the movies. Uh, We don't spend time arguing and bickering with other victims of racism because we don't agree with their stance on racism. They're not doing anything to kill us. They're not doing anything that's harming another non-white person. We just don't agree with their stance, and we sit around and argue with them for the next week or month or year, whatever the case may be. Uh, Just a whole litany of things, myself included, uh, that just have been totally trashed and replaced with doing things that make logical sense towards solving the problem of racism. That's what I would like to see in terms of major change. I just don't see that right now. All of us, myself included, my fir- uh, myself first and foremost, can make massive improvements in that, just in the way that just simple things, the way that we allocate our time and energy on a daily basis to better reflect our seriousness about putting white folks out of business. And I hope that answers your question clearly. If not, let me know. Uh, it, it does, but I mean, just listening to everything, you know, I, I sit there and I listen, I'm okay, things are working out, um, I'm not as confused, but at the same time, a lot of times I feel, it, it's like you wake up and you see this matrix, like you even, you can read body language now, like when, when people do certain things to you, like, oh, that was racist, oh, they're doing it, like you can just catch it, and at, after a while you just become you feel trapped and you feel extremely exhausted. Um, that's how I feel a lot of times, especially after being awoken and, and noticing all of this. And I just sometimes I feel like, okay, I'm listening to all this stuff and it's moving at such a slow, place, a slow pace in terms of it 
diffusing out to the masses. And it's like, when is this going to, when are we all going to wake up? Not all, but a lot of us, so that there can be a major change or a major uh, movement to stop all the mistreatment. Because if you look at it, if this is this has been happening for so many years, um, even with the book that you read about uh, pertaining to uh, Ben Tillman, and it's like how many of us have to get beat, shot, stabbed, and everybody just goes again, goes on with their life willy nilly, like oh, you know, another day. It, it, it's just it's so weird to me, and it becomes very stressful to watch that, and for a lot of people not to see what I see. Uh, yeah, so that's all I was asking them. I don't know if other folks have commentary on that, but uh, that is the system of white supremacy being frustrated that, you know, things aren't moving quicker, uh, more efficiently to, to deal with that problem. I know that has come up a lot on this program, people feeling the exact same way that you do and feeling stressed because now they have a better grasp of what's happening with regards to white supremacy and seeing it every day and just being stressed, other people not getting it, not being around other people that you can share these ideas for, share these ideas with. Um, I, heard that frustration expressed a lot. I don't know if other people have comments that they want to share on that specifically, what you just brought up, but I've, I've heard it frequently. And, and again, to me, that just represents the power, uh, the enormous power of the system that we are dealing with. I would like to comment on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel the exact same way. Um, I mean, personally, I believe that the work that Gus is doing, of course, you know, nearly full of junior, uh, Dr. Francis Cresswell saying stuff like that is going to affect some things. Um, the process might indeed be, you know, s- slower than we would like. I think along, just my personal opinion, I think along with some more uh, natural, so-called natural disasters, so. The color on the soap line. I'm not sure if. Uh, let's see. Okay, the color on the vote line. It, oh, it looks like he got disconnected all the way. I don't know if he had some tech issues. Could be massive interference all the way through. If he dials back in, I'll, I'll get his line and uh, we'll get him in so he can finish his commentary. Oh, there he is. And other folks. Uh, if you all have commentary you'd like to share, feel free. Please don't wait until the last minute until we get to uh, workplace racism. If you have comments you want to make sure you get in as well. Let me see if I can get the caller who was just with us back on the line. Uh, let's see. Caller, uh, are you back with us? Sorry, you got disconnected. You should be back with us. Yes. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, as I was saying, <clears throat> I don't know exactly when I was cut off, but uh, – uh, I feel the exact same way that the previous caller does as well. Um, and then, you know, the more, you know, not confused as you are or less confused you are, the very, uh, all the itty-bitty little pieces of uh, racism that you notice kind of affects you and has an, uh, kind of stresses you a little bit. Because, But I, what I think is, um, again, along with the work that Gus is doing, like, uh, Mr. Neely Fuller Jr., Dr. Francis Wilson, uh, amongst many, many others um, are doing. It's going to help 
in um, racism. Uh, but for me, particularly in my opinion, I just think that it's going to take some more big disasters, big catastrophes. I think it's going to be more black people dying or just non-white people dying, more economic problems throughout, you know, this country and the entire world in combination with, uh, you know, the work that people are doing against uh, racism. I think that's it's going to turn it around at some point, but I think at this point right now it's just, uh, I guess black people think it's not bad enough. Like they think that is, uh, since of, of course, you know, racism is over and, you know, formal, uh, formal, uh, segregation has been ended that it's, you know, progress has been that big word progress is being made. But, um, I think that it's going to have to get worse to get better. And that's just my opinion. Some big catastrophes and more people dying, frankly. And, you know, that sounds depressing, um, but uh, that's what I think is going to, you know, turn this thing around, uh, along with the work that everyone here is, trying, uh, you know, doing the counter-racist uh, uh, tactics. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Um. Yeah, I agree with what um, both the gentlemen just said. It's very difficult to be like you see something and no one else sees it. And, um, you know, I remember listening to your show. And I've been listening for a long time, and I didn't always agree with it, but I did agree with it at the same time. It was logical, but... It was an episode we had nearly full. It kind of reminded me of the episode you played a few weeks ago where he was arguing what the lady was being very disrespectful to him. And um, he made a comment. He said that white supremacists are the smartest people on the planet. And I said, this dude is crazy. You don't know what he's talking about. And then one day I got it. And then it's the most logical thing ever. It's like, yeah, it, I, I just, you know, I, I just, I don't know what, what life would be if this show didn't exist because it's been here all this time and I just didn't see it. Or maybe I wanted to make myself believe that it wasn't there. But trying to get other people to see it is very difficult. And it, um... You know, like like you say, you know, I used to argue, but I don't argue anymore. I kind of just, I plant my seed and I let people know how I feel and I leave it alone. And um, I don't get into conversations with them about racism or I try to avoid them altogether. But you'll be surprised how many people when something happens will come back to me and say, yo, you know, you said this before and I heard, overheard you saying that. It, 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 it's, it never shocks me. But, um, yeah, I agree with what both the guys said. It's very difficult. It's like a lonely, you're a lonely person in the in the world. Even in my own household, people think I'm, everyone in my house thinks I'm crazy. I mean, you on that show again talking about white people? You know, it's, it's ridiculous. But I know it's, it's real. 
And I'll mute my line. Thank you. That is another one I've heard a lot where people have uh, taken that. I have done that myself. I have experienced that too where you're talking with someone and they're just, oh, my God, you are you are crazy. You are some radical militant Negro uh, that maybe should be in jail, uh, and I'm going to go hang out with my good white friends and leave you alone with your crazy ideas. And, okay, no problem. You don't argue. Remain courteous. You state your position or your view or what have you and leave it at that. And then a month or a week or sometimes a year, I've even had that happen where uh, it was a white woman and myself, other victims said, hey, this white woman is a racist. Like, boom, boom, boom. She did this. She did this. She did this. She's mistreated many, 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 many non-white people. Like, you know, done deal. This, this chick is a race soldier. And the other non-white that was supposed to be a friend, like, you're crazy. I love this white woman. She's not in a sexual way. Just, she's the greatest. She's cool. We hang out. We're the best. Fine, no argument. <laughs> a year later, same non-white person came back. Was like, you know, I think this chick is racist, really. And even then, it wasn't. A, I tried to tell you that you're so stupid. You should have. Really? Why do you say that? <laughs> and they explain. I, and I've even heard Mr. Fuller comment on that before too. He, I think the, uh, I am using a metaphor. The metaphor I think he used was. It's equivalent if you tell someone that they have a flat tire and they don't believe you. They don't want to check or they don't – whatever. From their position, from their angle, it doesn't look flat, so they ignore you. Uh, fine, no problem. <laughs> if the tire is flat, it's going to reveal itself. Uh, eventually, at some point, the car is not going to drive, and they'll realize that they have a problem, and now we can get down to business. And I think – I know a lot of people do not agree with that approach, but I have seen where that does work, and uh, white supremacy does exist eventually – People will have to acknowledge that. Uh, the person that dialed in, uh, 5234, 5234, did you have a comment, something you want to add? Uh, yes, I agree, Mr. Dyson, to all of the callers. Um, I was thinking about the segment that you played with the woman whose coworker posted a picture of himself and her son on Facebook and the backlash, the racist backlash that took place on there. And that goes back to uh, codification on the job. Keep your kids away from white people and especially your coworkers. Don't bring them to your job. Don't take, let them take pictures with them, none of that kind of stuff. And it also made me think of um, how white people create technology in order to help refine the practice of white supremacy in a way that I look at black people the way that um, Jews were before Hitler helped to set everything into motion in, um, as far as eradicating them and um, people of African descent in Germany. And um, it's almost like they really didn't understand the system at all. And then when it was too late, they wanted to, they couldn't do anything about it, and it just was what it was. I believe that black people in this part of the world are in the same situation. We're so busy trying so hard to be a part of the system and, and just fit, get in where we fit in. And um, as a result, a lot of us are blinded to the reality of what's going on. So when the other people who just spoke about um, are feeling kind of lonely, I know, or feeling lonely, I know exactly what they mean, um, exactly what you mean when you say in your own household, because for a while when I started listening to the program, I ended up having a discussion with my wife about it, and she was uh, kind of concerned about my language, just the, just the shift in the way that I spoke about things, even though she was familiar with me speaking about racism quite a bit throughout our entire um, relationship. And we've been together now about uh, 21 years. So it's very interesting that uh, now, in recent months, the language in my household is shifting 
in a more codified direction because now they understand. And um, recently, both my son and my wife got to listen to two different programs, uh, archive programs of uh, Gus discussing things. And my wife was fairly fast, really fascinated with the way Gus handled himself in that particular interview. And um, she was just asking me a ton of questions. I kept answering her questions. But most recently, she actually came to me with uh, speaking about a situation she went through, and she used the term white supremacy. And that's the first time she ever actually used it in discussion with me about anything. And I was like, okay, this is a great sign. So I'm going to take my time with her, but she's slowly transitioning um, to a much better understanding of the way the system works. And my son is making leaps and bounds. So he's doing wonderfully as far as that's concerned. So Gus, I thank you for this program and for all the other people that call in. Your perspectives are very eye-opening, and it just helps to further, excuse me, enrich my understanding of this system. And I just pass it on to those black people who I know are really looking for the truth and um, want to get an understanding of how to protect themselves and their relatives in this in this crazy world that we all are surviving. So thank you very much, and I'll meet my line. Oh, that is wonderful. Black household uh, moving towards codification. That is beautiful. That the caller that asked before, like, what would it look like? More of that. <laughs> and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that they're listening to the cows or my views or what have you, just moving towards a better understanding, an accurate understanding of racism, white supremacy, and what we should be doing to correct that problem immediately, doing those things and getting more people to do those things, the people that have that information, sharing it with as many folks as possible. That That is the process. That's what I would hope would be happening and seeing if we can make that happen more efficiently uh, and far greater reach uh, than we presently have. I was just going to say real quick, uh, the mail call that I just shared, uh, we did have, uh, I think this has popped up before, uh, and popped up more recently, and I told the person that wrote me about this, uh, they were saying, uh, if you are in an attempted partnership, right, male-female relationship, trying to make it work out under the worst of conditions, and you are more informed about racism, white supremacy, your attempted partner, they're not really into racism, they don't care about that, uh, hopefully they don't have white friends, but just, you know, I'm not, I'm not into all that stuff, I'm enjoying life, racism, it might prop up every now and then, but it's not a big deal, and certainly nothing that I need to invest a lot of time and energy uh, studying, talking about, focusing on, uh, how do you navigate that and maintain a healthy relationship when you are with someone who's a little bit less confused. If you have anything you would like to share on that, uh, I know we have a lot of listeners who've asked about that and would appreciate any feedback you could offer. Uh, thank you very much. Um, what I actually did was, um, because well, what I did was I just started to just change the way I discussed racism because I used to be very much a firebrand and very angry because I was angry almost all the time. Um, this system kind of kind of makes you feel that way, especially when you experience this kind of stuff all the time. So um, what I really started to learn how to do is channel it, and instead of just being angry, I really – actually, everything about – when you start to really learn, because what the cows helped me to do was to shift my language. It's not that it, I never understood. As soon as I came across this show, it, it was like, wow. 
somebody understands exactly what I've been feeling and they have the verbiage to express it in a codified manner. And the best part that I liked about it was the control of the emotions because that's extremely important. Um, that's what white people feed off of. They're like vampires. So when they see us react the way that they want us to react, they can choose to do whatever they can, what they want because they have the power to do it. So this show helped to shift my consciousness in that direction as well. And I made leaps and bounds. So what I started to do was just slowly shift my language. And at first it was very concerning for my wife because she had never really heard me use the term racism, white supremacy in conjunction like that. I've just used racism itself or I've used white supremacy separately but never together. And I just started to make that my practice. That was my, almost like a religion. It's, it's, like, it's a whole shift in your paradigm. And as I started to do that, over time, she started to tell me about her own experiences, and I started to explain to her that a lot of these experiences, you know, she is not, and we as, as a family are not immune to them, and we're not the only ones going through it. And I started to tell her, you know, as I started to listen to the cows regularly, I said, I'll hear a lot of similar stories from other men and women just like us. And slowly, I, every time she would tell me these stories, I would use the term racism, white supremacy. And I would t just discuss with her the fact that it's a system and that it permeates uh, all, I, call, I say, 10 areas of people activity because I've added health care as well. Um, so I started to really break down that concept and that understanding to her, and eventually it started to resonate. With my son, it was a lot easier um, simply because he's younger and he has a lot more experiences because he's in college. So we have discussions on a daily basis. My family is extremely close-knit, so it wasn't too hard for me to get through to my son, and he just picked up on it almost. It was almost like a breath of fresh air. He just, he just took it and ran with it. So his um, ability to navigate in school and his relationships with people that he, has to, that he has to deal with because they're white, he codifies everything about the way he deals with them doesn't give any very much, very little information about himself, and he keeps to himself, minds his business, and gets his work done. He's extremely focused and um, a 4.0 student. So um, these are all the things that I believe, to me, the most important thing I brought to my family was just uh, that information and making it um, just my daily reality that I speak on this whenever it shows its face, I identify for what it is, whether it's on a news program I'm watching or wherever I'm at, or if it happens, I discuss it with my wife or she discusses things with me, and we're just very open and honest about it. So that's what I did, and I started very slowly, but there was a shift in my language first. And then over time, as I started to identify racism and white supremacy, um, eventually she started to understand it more. And we would have discussions and she would ask questions and I would just answer those questions. And over time now, I think she's really open to the, the, the deeper understanding that it permeates all aspects of our lives and we have to navigate in a certain way in order to be as, uh, I would say, quote, unquote, successful as possible at achieving our daily goals or our long-term goals in the system because they make it uh, horribly hard at every turn possible. And that's really, that's really what it is for me. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. I'm hoping folks will appreciate that, folks that are in that position uh, where they have someone who might be a little bit less confused and, and trying to figure out the best way to uh, make things work. Uh, the person that called in from the Bay Area should be with us as well if you had commentary to share. May I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Greetings, guys, and to the rest of the callers. In my English class, we're examining protest activism, especially the black types, 
For example, where we examined the Watts riots, which happened in 1965 in Los Angeles, California. It involved a lot of looting and fire and stuff. Uh, we also examined songs, for example, Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. And that song is basically about the slavery and the scene. Uh, witnessing the lynchings of the black people during the slavery. For example, there's this lyric that says, black people hanging from the trees of the South, which really got to me the most and told me what the song was about. And that's all I really wanted to share. Hmm. Right on. Appreciate that, young man. He's dialed in before for folks who uh, have been listening to the compensatory call in. Um, I was just going to ask real quick, did anybody in, in the class or any of the discussions, did anybody question uh, the use of the term uh, riot to describe what happened in Watts in 1965? Oh, our uh, young man in the Bay Area, did you... Uh, did you hear the question? I don't know if he's still uh, with us. Did Did anybody question the use of the term riot, uh, either in class or any of the conversations? Oh, no. Uh, we read this article based on it, and the head uh, the head title claimed that it was a riot, So, which really got to me. I would have called it a protest, but I just used it according to the title. Uh, but I would usually call it a protest. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I think, in, at least in my opinion, I think that's one, and I know Mr. Reed and, and quite a few other folks have caught that. I think white people consistently criminalize black people when we start to call attention to racism, point out that this is happening, this is a problem, uh, and are trying in our weak position to, to correct this problem. They criminalize our counter-racist efforts, so they'll use terms like that to say, oh, this is – this is a riot uh, that happened here as opposed to other, as you said, protest, uprising, unrest, lots of other terms. White people, they're smart. They have a thesaurus. Uh, but they will use terms to criminalize, to take away legitimacies from what black people uh, are doing to work against racism, white supremacy. Um, that's definitely one. And even you said there was a lot of uh, rioting and looting and that sort of thing as opposed to looking at white people as criminals, uh, exploiting these black people, putting them in these horrendous conditions, not giving them an opportunity to get employment, police, terrorism on a daily basis. White people don't get looked at as criminals, just black people. Uh, they are very, very good at doing that, in my opinion, getting better at doing that sort of thing with words. Does that make sense, what I just said, or am I, am I talking crazy? Oh, no, it makes sense. Okay, okay. Was there any comparison to what's going down this weekend with the Justice or Elson March in Washington, D.C.? Did anybody make any comparisons or no? Uh, no, not really, no. Hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. That's, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised. I will, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised about that at all. Wow. Um, uh, definitely appreciate it. I remind the, uh, our young caller in the Bay Area, certainly if uh, you ever get to the point now, or even if you don't, but if you ever get to the point where you, you know, blog about your experiences and, and what you're discussing in school, experiences that you have, 
Uh, if you blog or do a blog, YouTube channel, anything like that, let us know. We will support, and I think a lot of folks would be super interested in seeing what a young black male in 2015, uh, what you have to say about racism and, and particularly uh, what you're seeing uh, in your classes and what have you as you progress through high school. So if you do it, great. If you don't, that's fine too. But if you do, let us know, and, and we'll definitely support. Okay. Thank you. For sure, for sure. May I have you heard? Absolutely. Uh, Mr. Gross, I have a question for you again. Um, I would like to know that uh, how do you control your your temper when you're communicating? Some people have uh, different uh, levels of tolerance. And, uh, for example, reading the Malcolm X book, the autobiography of Malcolm X, um, it, it, it's, it said somewhere in the book that the one thing that he always tries to do is never lose his cool. And he described that when he was in a classroom making a speech and somebody uh, questioned him and he said, what do you call a professor or someone with a Ph.D.? And he said the N-word. But, so I'm using that example to illustrate, uh, like, how do you control your temper? Because with me, for example, um, what, you know, when I'm addressing a certain situation where that I was uh, mistreated, it's hard for me to keep my cool. Uh, so at times when I'm communicating, like from the outside, people won't see that, oh, he lost his cool. I'll, I'll kind of like shut down a little bit because I know that, that if I say anything else, it may come out in a bad way or my tone may sound harsh. So I'll talk a little bit and not say too much because I, I'm trying to constantly calm myself down. And when you're, when you're doing interviews, I've noticed that you're very, very calm and you communicate very effectively. And I'm trying to get to that point. It, it's been taking a very long, long time for me to do that, uh, but I still haven't gotten there, not on your level at least. Uh, I'm still learning, trying to do better myself. Um, some of the things that I try to do within, for me, it shifts, like depending on the context. So in the context of when we're doing the program, uh, trying to monitor my uh, temper and making sure I don't get angry and yelling at the guests, that sort of thing. Um, one of the things, one of the primary things that I think about if it's within the context of this program, uh, if we're doing this, this program is designed for non-white people to learn about, get a better understanding of what racism is, how it works, what does it mean to be white. Non-white people, myself included, you put Gus's name at the top of the list, we have been totally contaminated, victimized by white supremacy. One of the aspects of that is when any non-white person, I would say especially a black person, uh, confronts a white person about racism. I think the analogy that Dr. Cambon uses is like we have a little uh, white traffic cop in our head. And so we see that or we hear a black person is, is getting on this white person and the little white traffic cop's like, oh, my God, do you hear the way that nigger is talking to that good white person? They, you know, gave up their evening to come on this program and they're going to be acting that. That's the way that I think about it because I know I used to be like that. I'm still like that. The little white traffic cop will hop up if I'm listening to somebody is, boom, giving it to him. It's like, oh, my God, can you believe that? And you almost want to go in to defend that white person. So to short circuit that, I really try to be on my toes and saying, okay, there are going to be people. Uh, this is their first time here in the cows. We have the white guy that we had on the program uh, Thursday night, Jesse Neville, or the white guy that we have uh, tomorrow. This will be the first time that a non-white person, a victim of racism, hears this program. I believe, 
you can process a little bit better. I'm talking about non, really anybody. Can, non-white people can process that information better if it's not yelling because it's so easy. The white people have done such a good job. They're just waiting to say, oh, who is this angry Negro? He's yelling. He's militant. He's radical. I'm not going to listen to that. And you will get about five seconds, and they will either turn it off or they really won't listen to what you're saying. Uh, you've already, you will already, your credibility will be gone within 30 seconds. I've seen that consistently. Uh, so what I found is that it is way more effective, uh, exponentially more effective. If you can stay calm and just whatever your position is, if you can stay calm, you state your position. If you don't agree, that's fine. You're still going to get some of that just because white people have been very successful at victimizing us, but you can minimize it. That's a, a huge thing that I keep in mind. I've had a lot of feedback that confirms that for me. As I said, this is something that I observe in myself, so I don't, I don't really need the, the confirmation from others, but other people have uh, said the same thing. So I know that that's a huge factor that I try to keep uh, in mind on the program. One of the other things that I think uh, is the website, the folks that do chimp out, that I try to keep that as, as a dominant theme because white people love it. That will probably come up in workplace racism too. They love upsetting black people. I spoke with Mr. Fuller uh, within the last like five days, and he said the same thing. Uh, white people have made that one. Really, he said white people have made that the primary goal of white supremacy, just to have fun abusing and terrorizing black people. I'm a white person. I feel bad. What am I going to do? Let's see. We'll go tell some nigger jokes and see if we can upset Frank and Jane. They're both black. See if we can mistreat them on the job today, and we'll clown on uh, Minister Farrakhan and race baiters that were in D.C. today. Just anything we could do to get on their nerves and upset them, that makes me feel better about myself as a white woman, as a white man. And so I really try to keep that in mind. I'm not going to get that. You are not going to get that. I'm not going to be jumping up and down. I don't care what you have to say. Jesse Neville, I've already come to my conclusion about you. Uh, I'm going to state my views. We're going to be calm and proceed. Trying to be a man, I'm trying to be a woman. I can have a calm conversation just like when you have generals that are in a war. They can have a calm, business-like conversation with an enemy combatant, someone that they are trying to kill and someone that's trying to kill them. I can still sit down and have calm conversation without jumping up and down and yelling. Uh, there are a few other things that I try to do. Same thing that you said, if I do sense that I'm getting upset, to calm down, take some time, stop talking, monitor my breath, monitor my heart rate, those type of things to, if I am starting to get upset, to just calm down. But just being mindful, being aware of yourself, and just having a code, my code about how I want to present about racism and catching. And that's something I've heard Mr. Fuller, too. If uh, people mentioned the conversation we played a while back, the person starts to, to not be responsive or they're being discourteous, they're yelling, they're being angry. You can sense that in the conversation. You know how you want counter-racism uh, conversations to go as soon as you recognize it. See if we can slow this down. And I guess I can end here. The position that I take, if I'm more informed about racism, white supremacy, if I'm talking to a non-white person, same thing applies. I don't want to be rude or nasty with them either. If I'm more informed, I'm going to be the one who is going to make sure that this stays constructive and doesn't get nasty. I'm going to be the one who does as much as possible to make sure that we do not have something that uh, devolves into just name-calling and nastiness uh, and just totally non-constructive conversation. So those are some of the things that I try to be mindful of, uh, to stay calm, to stay cool. I'm still working on it myself, but those, those tend to, uh, to work well for me in the context of the program. I agree with what you're saying. Um, last thing I just want to say is that um, the, the prime reason why it, it, 
it uh, makes me angry when I'm encountering it, and sometimes it's hard for me to communicate is because I respect myself as a human being, and when I see someone is literally doing something wrong to me, and they play this passive-aggressive type of role, and it's like you can't really point it out. It, it, it's so, so difficult. So uh, that's why I was asking you that. Um, I'm you, Milan. Right, right. Definitely something, uh, like I said, to work at. Uh, it takes a little skill um, to do. They have conflict resolution. They have <laughs> classes and things that um, can teach those type of skills, how you deal with that, dealing with the conflict uh, situation, and just the way that you use words. Uh, they, they have classes where you can pick up more uh, skills in dealing with all of that. But definitely I think it, it uh, is helpful. And, and, again, I'm certainly – we have every right to be – Furious uh, as victims of racism, black people, every right. Uh, it's not saying that you aren't angry. I think one of the callers previously said that just finding different ways to use that anger in the most constructive manner, that's what we're going for, not just being angry where it ends up producing more problems for you. Uh, with that, uh, we will get to workplace racism. Uh, folks have things they would like to share uh, for workplace racism, the number to dial 6 Four one seven one five three six four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, folks have things to share on workplace racism. Uh, feel free. Definitely that incident at the that I played at the beginning, the white guy that was working down in Georgia in Atlanta, and he was mocking the young black child. Uh, one of his black coworkers was there. She had brought her son in uh, to work with that. Uh, I did not really hear very many folks saying, hey, this white guy, it seems he has a lot of white supremacist friends. Uh, maybe that alone, even if we knock everything else, what he did, what he didn't do, it seems like you have a lot of white supremacist friends on your Facebook that is fascinating. What does that say about just regular, typical white person that you would have this avalanche of racist friends at the ready to respond to a photograph that goes up on your Facebook page? That was one, and then I didn't, I didn't hear if anybody said it or not, but I think he also, the white guy, he classified himself as being a victim in this incident. The black people were victims, and I'm a victim too. I lost my job, and people are coming after me. as a racist standard operating procedure where they will do this all the time. Uh, white people... They have to make themselves the victim. That way they can generally justify any sort of savage barbarism that they want to engage in. I was wrong. Somebody did something to me. I've been victimized. Woe is me. I need all the attention, and then I'm justified in going out and doing anything. Uh, I thought that was profound in that segment, and I'm glad somebody reinforced what I've said consistently when you go on the job. This is war. You're not hanging out. These are not your friends. You don't want them meeting your family members. You don't want any photos of Family up and around, avoid all of that. That's just inviting unnecessary conflict, which is exactly what happened uh, in this incident. Uh, not that, you know, it's not the woman's fault. It's this tacky, racist uh, white man who will probably just get transferred to another job. Uh, it's his fault. They do this sort of thing consistently. And, again, just being mindful about that so that we can avoid that and, and not have to deal with any of that sort of just unnecessary problems on the job. Uh, folks had other comments on workplace racism? Feel free.
Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Okay, here's an incident uh, again. I really wish I was uh, less confused, uh, you know, a long time ago because I will probably have many more workplace racism stories. But anyway, um, um, this particular couple of incidents that happened really reminded me when I listened to um, most of uh, Dr. Marimba Adni's um, Urugu to where she explains that pretty much like everything that white people do is political. Like everything is driven politically. They're not just doing stuff haphazardly or, you know, willy-nilly. Or It's political. It's for a reason. Usually it's a, a racist reason. But anyway, um, uh, I was new to a workplace as well as another uh, white coworker of mine was new to a workplace. Again, um, <clears throat> I'm in the military. We were the same rank. Um, both of our, our both of our supervisor, he was he was the supervisor for both of us. Uh, you know, assigned me. You know, it's like, hey, why don't you know you can take this office? And um, but you know, my other the my white coworker, my supervisor was white too. But my uh, the one that was the same rank, uh, rank as me, he wanted that office. But anyway, he made a point to really be, befriend me. You know, I was more confused back then. Uh, you know, invited me to his house, which I went over there, ate dinner with him and his family. You know, that was very awkward. But, you know, I went and did it because, of course, we're all West Black people. We're always trying to prove that we're, you know, open and, you know, whatever. So he uh, would always tell, you know, kind of little you know, racist jokes, you know, the particular one they always like to go to, they like to talk about since they're so insecure about their sexuality and their their bodies and stuff, they always talk about the black man's penis jokes, you know, oh man, you you know, you guys never have problems with getting women and blah blah blah. Like it's always that's always a common thing with uh white males when they you know, talking about black males and of course, you know, discussing sports, you know, uh, always referring to the the athletic black guys, you know. They're not necessarily smart. The the black athletes aren't smart. It's just, just natural athleticism, you know. Um, that's the reason why they're so good. Uh, of course, the, you know, the fantasy football type of stuff, you know. They, you know, I remember you had a show about that too as well, Gus, where, you know, they these white people pretty much feel like they're controlling, you know, niggers basically through fantasy football. They can be the owner of the team and, you know, talk about, you know, discuss that. Uh, anyway, he befriended me and ended up convincing me, which I didn't really want the office. I don't, I, you know, I didn't care, but he ended up convincing me that he should move into the office instead of me. And I was like, hey, man, you can have the office. I don't really care you know I usually I'm going to be working doing other stuff most of the time anyway but he ended up getting the you know getting the office I said hey, go ahead and take it he was able to you know get closer to our supervisor another white man they became really close they would have a lot of you know private meetings in the supervisor's office which I, I suspected they were you know practicing some real heavy racism you know behind closed doors 
And, you know, he ended up getting promoted and everything, but it was just, you know, the way in which he, I guess, really tried to be my friend, so to speak, and I kind of, I allowed it to happen, And um, but they're very, very, uh, they're refined, refined. So if they don't do it out, outwardly by, you know, calling you a nigger or something, they'll be nice to you. They'll they'll give you, they have access to so many resources and so many different things that, you know, they'll be nice to you to get what they want or whatever. And also, like, I was, uh, you know, I have, uh, I had, uh, you know, some, some weapons at the time, some, some, you know, guns, and he wasn't into guns whatsoever. And he really was, like, questioning me about, oh, what kind of gun, you know? Can I buy your gun and and everything? And um, he would really, you know, spark up conversations about guns. And now he turned into the typical, he's a big gun fanatic now, but basically he was getting all the, you know, he kind of got the info from me and was like, wow, this I kind of believe this is what's going on in his mind. Like, wow, this nigger has guns, and I don't. Like, I'm white. I'm supposed to be fully armed, and I'm supposed to be the ep- expert on these things. So so he took off and just really started really researching and keep, you know, begging me to buy some of my, my guns. And, you know, but now I'm pretty sure he's probably ahead of me as far as, like, the the number of guns that he owns and, probably the knowledge and stuff, but it's just, I felt like he was practicing racism the whole time. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. White people in their firearms heard that prominently last couple weeks. Other folks have commentary on uh, workplace racism. Feel free to chime in. Again, I will get in since we have that many people listening in and uh, folks are lollygagging. I'm so glad to hear that uh, we have so many black people that are doing well. They're not being abused. They're not being mistreated, not passed over for promotions, no problems, no tacky remarks, no nosy white people asking you a lot of questions, trying to get all into your uh, business or chastising you because you were 30 seconds late uh, back from your lunch break. Uh, I'm so glad to hear that. And I hope you can invest because it seems like you probably are getting all your raises, promotions, things are going great. Please invest. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal is in the top right corner. Drop us an email if you would like a mailing address, but uh, that should be no problem since we have folks who are doing spectacular on their jobs. Oh, and the PS is, since folks are doing that well, you should definitely have codification because that's been something we've uh, requested the whole time through. If you are on your job and you're in that great position after you make your investment, definitely have your code for things that have worked well. How did you get to that spot where you don't have any problems? White people aren't messing over you. They're not messing over your your raises, your promotions. You're not getting any write-ups, any verbal reprimands or what have you. How did you get to that spot? Uh, that's definitely something we need. So uh, please, if, if things are going that great for you, please codify some. This is what I've done. This is what I've observed. 
these are words that I'm using and what have you to make it smooth sailing so I don't have to deal with any, any craziness, any racism, any tackiness from my white colleagues. Please uh, let us know so we can uh, smooth our work experience out too. Gus, I have another real quick one. It seems like it's, you know, not many people are ready to speak, but I'll try to make it as quick as possible. But another tactic that racists like to use on the job is, um, again, uh, I'm in the military setting, but, again, most, for the most part, it's just like any normal work setting. But when they find that they have some, uh, I guess, a black uh, troublemaker or, you know, a non-white troublemaker, someone that's not um, – <clears throat> that's being defiant or not, do, you know, following the rules. They want to put uh, another black person directly over them to be their supervisor or whatever, which uh, I believe the tactic is to cause conflict between, you know, the two black people, you know, the one that's supervising and the one that's supposed to, supposedly defiant and, you know, a rule breaker and stuff like that. And then, of course, if this person continues to break rules, then the, the white, you know, the supervisor can blame you, you know, the, and the person that they put in charge of this person, or, you know, uh, they just, I think it's just a way to keep conflict going. So, you know, if uh, the person they put in charge of the other one is, you know, trying to, you know, hey, you need to do this, then, you know, the... The person, the, the defiant one is, you know, resentful of that person, and, you know, you're, it causes a lot of conflict. And I've been put in that situation many times where I'm supposed to be, you know, the babysitter of another black, particularly a black male, or not actually both, black males and females that are supposedly troublemakers or something, and then I find myself, you know, trying to, you know, I try to, you know, abide by the rules and help them to do so too, but it causes conflict and then it causes conflict with the white person or sometimes it's non-white people too, but most of the time it's a black, uh, white person and then they come, hey, why is this person doing this? And, you know, like, so they're holding both, you know, two people accountable for something, uh, a break in the rules as opposed to one and they're causing conflict at the same time. So it's, it's another little strategy that they use. I'm sure other people have probably experienced stuff like this as well. I think I have heard about that on this program specifically, people talking about that sort of thing. I, for all the reasons that you lined out, the black supervisor, you try to help the black person out and let them know what's going on and, and try and look out for them, and they come fuss at you. Why are you doing this? They can get you in trouble. Uh, or if you do what they say, hey, this person is, is not – stepping up, they're not getting their work done, or they're, you know, whatever infractions they're accused of committing. Uh, and so, hey, okay, I'm going to be tough. I'm going to try and get this person in order. And then exactly as you said, the black person gets resentful of the black supervisor and, kind of, I mean, masterfully put together. And I'm of the opinion it's just not logical, it's not intelligent to think that this just happens. It's a coincidence. Uh, I, I think it's deliberate for all the reasons that you just laid out, sir. And they do, this is not just a military thing. They do this all over McDonald's, Staples, whatever the, uh, whatever the uh, business happens to be. Uh, other folks have commentary? Workplace racism? Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, yeah, I say you really shouldn't 
tell I, I wouldn't tell another non-white person or black person anything unless they came to me first. And even if they came to me first, I would vet them first, and it would take quite a while before I would, you know, <laughs> really say anything about anything of substance in relation to our work situation. Um, that's how I would basically deal with any black person that I saw on the job. I don't assume just because you're black that, you know, and even if you know all the, you know, so-called African-centered lingo, doesn't matter to me. I'm going to keep my distance and, and if, you know, things develop in a direction where we end up having some sort of discussion over time, um, you know, they would have to come to me first and I would still take a while to vet them before I would even think of volunteering anything. But as far as um, workplace racism this week, I was told by a coworker um, she was going through a program on my job to get a broker license and she's been there for um, about a month now, a little over a month. And, in the program, essentially, once you go to go, go through the New York State exam, um, the company basically pays for, and you pass the exam, essentially the company will pay for your license as far as the fees to facilitate the license so you can work with the, um, the members of the insurance group that we work for. So ultimately, she went to the program, passed the, the state exam, and the fee was $80. So the supervisor who was in charge of paying for the exam and facilitating the processing of the license fee um, actually wrote a check out for $40. So she's been going through like a three-week process the last three weeks of um, sending out checks and trying to take care of getting this facilitated, and she's been stymied at every turn by this supervisor. So there's another supervisor she went to because um, she had told me that the rules are if you don't uh, get the license in hand within a month of passing the test, they can let you go. So essentially she's pushing up on that month and she went to someone else um, in order to try and get assistance in facilitating it since the supervisor has been giving her the runaround. And now she says that other person avoids her at every turn. You know, every time she sees it, she goes in the opposite direction or she won't look her in the face and she'll run and hide somewhere. And then the original supervisor, who never paid the right amount for the fee, um, is just giving her the verbal runaround. So now she's on the verge of leaving, and she just moved to the New York area. She has a 7-year-old daughter, and um, she was kind of stressed out about it. So eventually she told me, luckily, she had an aunt who was able to facilitate her um, getting a job elsewhere. So this past Friday was her last day, and I was just I was happy for her, but she was just really, really flabbergasted by the way everything went down. But we kind of had a discussion where she came to me and told me some things she had, you know, borne witness to before, but she was still um, taken aback by the way she was treated and done. So I just wanted to say, what they, you know, she never did anything very nice, low-key kind of female, um, dark-skinned black woman, and very, very uh, personable kind of personality, but none of that really matters in the system. If they single you out for whatever reason they choose to single you out for, if anything goes, and if you don't have the um, ability to have insight or foresight into what's going down, you can be, you know, basically checkmated before you even get your, your behind, get your seat warm in the job. So just you know, we have to be careful. We have to be cognizant and as wary as possible. And sometimes even with all of those traits and all of those things, the, the system can just work against you and just not in your favor. So, you know, it's just one of those stories. So I feel kind of sad, but I'm glad she got something else and I'm glad she's out of there. So I wish you all the best. And um, that's pretty much it. Thank you. That, uh, greetings. Greetings. I just wanted to say real quick, that, that sort of comment, consistently we have about 30 to 50 people just on the phone line. That's not even counting people that listen, you know, wherever. 
30 to 50 people listening live on the phone. I just cannot believe for anything that you can get 30, 50 black people together and the vast majority of them have no comment on workplace races. I just do not believe that at all. I am certain the vast majority of people that are on the line listening right now, the story that you just shared has something similar. If it didn't happen to them directly, they've seen it. I, I think we've had that pop up on the program before, specifically around the training, where the job was supposed to compensate for some sort of training that you're doing to advance on your job. The black person goes and does it, passes with flying colors, and then they don't do the compensation. They don't keep their word. They don't follow through. We've heard that exact same thing before. And I think some of the codification around that was to get as much in writing up front. If it's dealing with compensation, if it's dealing with you're supposed to get a promotion once this training is completed or whatever the case may be, get that in writing so that you can nip as much out as possible. And just uh, I also think it's super important uh, just keeping in mind this is what racism, white supremacy is. It's not Nothing about this is set up for the black person, the black family to have a great time, great job, great education, and ride off into the sunset with it. No, it's not set up for that. It's, it's set up, oh, we gave you this job, and then we're going to figure out the quickest way that we can take it from you and humiliate you in the process. It took you a month to get the job. We're going to see if we can take it from you in two weeks and laugh and joke while doing it. Like that's exactly what white people engage in on the job all the time, and you just have to have that in mind to be prepared to deal with that. Hopefully you won't, but just have it in mind so you're not surprised. This is likely to happen under racism, white supremacy. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida? Yes, sir. Just giving my uh, weekly report on the uh, white male that's on the coaching staff. Uh, kind of interesting. Uh, he's basically this week uh, has been relatively quiet. Uh, uh, quiet from the standpoint of appeared to be accepting his uh, minor position on the coaching staff. Uh, and I think it's more than ironic that we happen to have won, uh, uh, won a game uh, in uh, won, won our first game within the last three weeks. I think uh, him being relatively quiet uh, and not uh, assuming the position of a typical uh, white male under the global context of racist white supremacy, uh, and uh, he doesn't have, and because he doesn't have any support, so I, I think that's at least by, by the coaching staff itself, he doesn't have any support. That uh, basically he's been remaining quiet, so to speak, uh, and uh, we've actually won our first game in about three weeks. Uh, Another observation uh, that I did have, and it took place right after the game, uh, the cheerleaders, uh, every last one uh, I, I, that I've seen are non-white black females. And uh, unfortunately, they're supervised by, one of the supervisors anyway that I've noticed is a white female doesn't have any place in this environment at all but we 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 i understand on why uh white people are placed in these type of environments they get extra pay they get uh a lot of extra pay and uh they quickly move on to bigger and better uh, uh situations within the public school system 
uh, behind it. Uh, but anyway, uh, a fight broke out with the uh, the cheerleaders, uh, 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 and uh, things were kind of like out of control due to it. Uh, and I suspect that there is not a whole lot of people that's able to uh, counsel or, or deal directly with these young ladies uh, on a daily basis. Uh, Comparable to uh, on our coaching staff, uh, there's a, there is a number of black males, and uh, one thing that that is constructive on this staff, uh, there are some of us who uh, kind of like witness to uh, the kids on the on the football team, and uh, I would like to see it the same thing with the uh, with the young ladies. Uh, uh, with the with young ladies who are in the uh, the organized uh, uh, portion of cheerleading, also, uh, I heard some commotion before the fight got started. Uh, a lot of anti-blackness uh, calling each other bitch and and whatnot stuff like that. And then pretty soon, uh, the fight this fight broke out with these uh, young ladies. And uh, uh, I, my job was to just to get the players, the football players, into the locker room. Uh, to uh, minimize the uh, the conflict as best as possible. Uh, I don't know what else happened after that, uh, other than it wasn't nobody seriously hurt or anything like that. But uh, uh, stay tuned. I guess Monday when school comes back into into uh, uh, comes back into play Monday, maybe there's something else to come up that I hear about it. But uh, that's definitely something that. Uh, that I'll be paying attention to, but uh, that's that's basically it. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. That is uh, that's wild. I'm not uh, I'm not sure I've seen the fight break out with the cheerleaders before. That's kind of wild. But uh, yeah, we'll be looking on the update. And it, was, and it was over. It was it was over a a uh, uh, some kind of uh, conflict with a uh, a male that they're fighting over mm. the normal silly stuff that we get into conflict with that uh at least to me seems like a situation where i could see a a exponential benefit to having a black female uh cheerleader instructor as opposed to this white chick who's probably yes. a white soldier uh, but yeah we'll be Looking for, I guess, both ways, the update with the white guy, the white coach, and then how this situation shape. I'm sure uh, they'll probably be looking to get a whole lot of folks. I don't know if they have suspensions uh, in that area, but I'm, I'm sure uh, that typically that tends to be a school event or what have you. That could end up being some, some suspensions or, or what have you. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 is, very, that is very much possible as far as that's concerned. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, really for what I've been hearing, because uh, I don't, I don't work as a quote unquote teacher during the school day. I normally show up, you know, in and around uh, after lunch break, and just uh, kind of like uh, stay in conference with the head coach. But uh, they've been reporting a lot of just the school makeup is about half of the student population is non-white black, and the other half is primarily non-white, non-black. It may be less less than one percent of of kids at this school who are white. Uh, 
quote unquote white. Uh, but as far as from the the, the teachers slash coaches that I work with, they they mention about it, there's a lot of of violent problems with the young ladies on the campus. Um, that right there to blame with racism, white supremacy as well, especially the anti-blackness and whatever, yes, yes, whatever else. Yes, sir. Like, yes, sir. Where to uh, instigating, instigating the uh, the whole conflict? But yeah, that is that is our mission. See if we can do as much as possible to minimize that sort of thing. And uh, other folks have commentary on workplace racism or comments you've heard on, you know, anything that's been shared thus far dealing with workplace racism. Feel free. We have about uh, 10 minutes left uh, before we wrap things up. Anybody else has things they want to share? I assume folks had a uh, grain. I was going to ask if the uh, justice or else thing popped up uh, on the job. I don't know if that's uh, something that people had been talking. I would assume people closer to the D.C. area that that uh, likely would have been a, co- a topic of discussion uh, leading up to everything. And then likely uh, at least Monday and Tuesday uh, when folks get back on the job. Uh, anybody have a person that dialed in? Uh, I think this might be Joy. Uh, good to hear from you. If it is, uh, your line should be open as well. What I experience at work often is, I think, what you used to refer to as the Voltron effect. And um, I often feel, know that that's what's going on. It's not really that troublesome when you know what's going on. But, for example... A, something that affects my job and causes often for me to not be able to perform to the standard that I would like is um, when a characteristic of my job is not being done properly. So I may go to the person that I think I can get some help from in order to collaborate to get the job done at a certain standard. It's necessary. So I will go and explain what I think the issue is and get their input. Then what I'm really trying to do is get that person to go and talk to the the next person up, which is the white person. So both of these persons are white. When we're talking, me and the first white person, we agree. So she goes off and she goes and talks with the white other white person at the other higher level. I could do the same thing, but what I'm trying to do is be strategic. 
so I can get my work done at a certain standard. But I need that person's um, facilitation to help me to get that done at that standard. So when she goes in, she's understood my issue, the first white person, and she agrees with me. Then by the time she goes in to talk with the other white person to get it facilitated and comes back to discuss with me what we thought we agreed on, no for in fact, no in fact we did agree upon agree upon. It comes back where it's different. They Voltron and they're now on the same page and there's no way so I just leave it. I have to leave it, and I have to therefore then operate on a substandard level, which I don't, as a part of my personality, like to do, but I'm stuck. You understand what I'm saying? So what happens is it also happens in meetings. So I say, well, let's agenda this so that we can get a group's perspective on what needs to be done, and to that standard, everyone agrees before the meeting. When the meeting happens, they Voltron. <laughs> so, so what happens is the standard cannot be achieved unless they all, unless, um, because otherwise they'd have to agree with me. In other words, to get it done to a certain standard, they'd all have to say, well, you're correct. Rather than do that and get it done at a higher standard, they oppose it in such a way that they bold time together, but the standard cannot be achieved. I hope I made myself clear, but this is what I experience on a routine basis pretty regularly, and I have to leave it and move on. So that's my uh, workplace racism input. Mm. Thank you for sharing. This is not joy. My apologies. I, same uh, same area code. Uh, not joy, but thank you uh, for sharing, ma'am. Really appreciate that. And for folks who are listening, the Voltroning, uh, when white people court, I don't know if people saw the cartoon, but uh, when white people coordinate, uh, they do this all the time, not just on the job, but they network, they get together, they speak, they swap notes, field notes, recon, uh, and then they come back out when they all are coordinated and they have strategized what they're going to do to mess over some black people. They are exemplary uh, at doing that. You see that with the police when they go out and they have shot a black person 150 times. That's a rendezvous. Get our story together. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, nigga pulled out a screwdriver. Tried to, okay, this is what we'll say. Boom, boom, boom. Get it together. They do the same thing on the job. That is going down all the time. You cannot minimize that. Uh, I mean, you don't even have to be doing anything, and white people likely are talking about you and little gossip that they get on the side, which you did for your vacation. If you went somewhere, they do this sort of thing all the time. And the female that uh, was sharing what they were doing on the job to kind of make sure that she couldn't produce the highest quality of work, I felt like that's such a great illustration of the pathology of white folks where, and it's really, in my opinion, it's the same thing that you see with uh, President Obama, why they can't get a Speaker of the House, in my opinion, I could be wrong, 
Uh, but when white people, when they're so upset, they get so focused on we're practicing racism, we're trying to mess up this black person so they can't do anything, we're just focusing our energy on that, they will end up a lot of times saying, well, we're okay with having just some absolute nonsense, something that is totally shoddy, not constructive, we could have done something way better, but they'll end up with nonsense just because, eh, if we do it the correct way, we would have to maybe give this black person some kudos, maybe have to help this black person. This black person might end up looking confident and good, like they know what they're doing, and they work against that all the time. I've seen so many illustrations of this, even the uh, compensation package that happened in World War II after uh, the Port Chicago explosion. Uh, they blew up. Uh, this happened in California. Even though it's called Port Chicago, but they uh, had an explosion uh, some bombs detonated, and it destroyed property, houses, tremendous loss of life. Uh, the anniversary was, uh, I think it was the 70-year anniversary, was this past summer. And uh, they said if we do the compensation package correctly, we would have to hook up a whole lot of black people. We don't want to do that, so we'd rather just have this shoddy, ridiculous compensation package where even white people don't get the correct thing. We would rather do that because we don't want to hook these niggas up. White people display that sort of just devious logic all the time. I'm totally not surprised. I am certain that's going down, not just on the call you just heard from, but so many people's jobs where they, hey, we'll take inferior quality product as opposed to having this black person look great and exemplary and like maybe we should be moving them up the line uh, in the company, and then they'll Voltron again and try and get the black person fired and blame you and say it's your fault. It's not that, you know, we couldn't come together and strategize and give you the resources that you needed or do whatever needed to be done so you could do great work. We'll just find a way to blame it on you so we can fire you and then keep on going. They, they do this all the time. I'm sure people have observed. Anybody have anything they want to add uh, in 60 seconds before we conclude, or is everybody satisfied? I wanted to ask the previous caller a question. I was going to ask her if um, they've ever Voltron in order to blame her for something if it was inadequate and some higher-up asked about it. Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, the female caller, are you still uh, still with us, or she departed? I don't know. Uh, she might have departed. I'll give a second or two if she's still with us. She can get her hand up if she wants to respond to your uh, question I'm sure that does happen, even if we're, we're not able to get the answer this week. At the female call, if you're uh, listening online, if you want to email, I can read your response next week, or you can call back next week, and, and, or you can even call tomorrow. We'll be back in 24 hours to uh, respond. But I am, I'm pretty sure uh, if we don't get her, is that something that you've observed? Is that something that's happened to you? It hasn't happened to me, but I was just thinking for her own protection or anyone else who might have gone through something like that, when she spoke about the fact that there was a person who previously agreed with her about the direction to go, I w what I would have done was email that person and get their agreeance in email. So if down the road something happened, there's a documentation that you already discussed the right way to do things, you got agreeance from that person prior to, and then after the meeting with the other white people, everything shifted, and you were unable to go through in the direction that you guys should have gone through in the first place just as a protective mechanism and keep a running total of all of those emails make sure they're always documented send them to your home email address because they can always have IT wipe your email so just you know whatever correspondence you send all the correspondence to your home email and you keep a running saving tally of that in case you have to defend yourself in a meeting that's something that I've learned to do because I experienced something like that as far as having to use uh, information that I saved from prior correspondence with my higher ups when things didn't go the way it was supposed to. So that was just something I wanted to put out there. Mm. 
Great suggestion. Great. I would definitely say that's something to be on guard about because that that has been like that's the that's the part B. Like when white people do their strategizing and what have you, they'll be like, okay, this is the first part of the offensive. This is the second part, and this is like when they have a 50-year plan, that's generally the way it goes. So it'll be like, okay, first we'll mess this black person up so they can't do quality work and it's really inferior, and then we'll have reason to blame it on them, and then we can maybe come after their job that they generally have things well planned out, or even if it didn't start that way, constructive and even reminded me of the clip that uh, it was in the, the, the audio clip that was played about the racism in the Nova Scotia Police Department. And the officer was saying that he had made a list of reports of racist incidents that had happened to him or other officers, and it was documented that this happened. It was incorrect. It was substantiated. And then it happened again, and he went to bring this up, like, hey, we've had a record of these reports of misconduct. All the reports are gone. Nobody has an explanation for where they – that sort of thing. Beautiful having those photocopies document, get your own documentation where you can have your own folder that I would not keep on the job. I would take it home. Uh, don't keep it in the building. That way you have it on your own. So if you come back, if you have documentation that we all agree, this is what needs to be done for me to do my job to the best of my ability. And then somehow white people came and made a decision that we're not going to do things in that way. Bam, you got your documentation and you're not depending on them to be truthful or accurate in their document and record keeping. You have your own backup copy. Excellent uh, suggestion. And uh, hopefully the female caller, if she's listening online or, or whatever the case, maybe she can update us uh, next week if, you know, the question you had about it, they've tried to gang up on her to blame her uh, for something, get her in trouble on the job. Uh, with that, we did our three. Uh, we should be back tomorrow, uh, normal program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. White man, uh, again, his name, I think I'm saying it correctly, it's, uh, Arno Michaelis, I think that's it. Arno Michaelis, he's a white man. He wrote the book My Life After Hate. Uh, he has a website. It's the same uh, address, mylifeafterhate.org. Uh, he has, he's done a lot of talks. I think you can see him on Democracy Now! from uh, I think it's the summer of 2013. He was on uh, – I think they were talking about the Sikh Temple shooting. Uh, if you go back, if you can't find it, let me know. I'll, I'll track it down. But just put his name in, and it'll pop up. He's done lots of stuff. He'll be hanging out with us tomorrow. Uh, have your questions. Always great to uh, be codified. Practice counter-racist codification with the folks that are the root of the problem, white people. Thanks all for listening in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. If you have problems, questions, suggestions, uh, ideas that you want to share, what have you, feel free. Drop an email until justice at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Until Justice. Thanks kindly. Grand hearing from everyone. Uh, we will speak tomorrow. Remain codified. Buckle up if you're going to be behind the wheel. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with enforcement officers. And certainly sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, we do not ever want to be around white people if they are under the influence very bad combination. Even be mindful about being around other non-white people who are intoxicated. Uh, I would say be mindful even about being intoxicated if you're going to be a passenger or pedestrian. White people look to make problems for black people all the time. Uh, we want to be lucid, clear thinking, so we can make the best possible decisions uh, to protect our lives and people that we care about uh, as best we can, uh, alcohol and being intoxicated is not going to help with that effort. That's it. 
Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.